Welcome to the Sherdog Radio Network preview for UFC 268, Usman versus Covington 2. I'm your host, Ben Duffy of Sherdog.com, and with me as always is Keith Schillen, executive producer of the Sherdog Radio Network. Keith, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, man. I'm excited. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. I, I hear it's a little cold up there in New England. It's yeah, cold. Man. By Texas standards down here, it was rainy and in the low 60s all day today, so uh, we're all bundled up. Uh, I'm sure I, it's going to be cold. Yeah, in... I'm not the guy. I'm not the guy to judge because my wife makes fun of me. Usually, the the woman is the one who doesn't. The woman is the one who can't warm up, and the guy is the one who's, you know, can have the window open. I'm the opposite. Like I'm a. I'll admit it. I'm a wimp when it comes to cold weather. I hate cold weather. I should have been born in Texas. Or California. My wife grew up in Canada. Oh, <laughs> you know what I mean? So can't say anything to her. She, about she the grew up in, in, in New Brunswick. I mean, she actually grew up, uh, actually, if people know uh, Matt and Craig Allen, those guys up there, she grew up in their neck of the woods, a very close, same province. So she's tough. I'm a whip. Like, so <laughs> we go to like, New York City, I'm assuming, is pretty close, same weather as us. And it's yeah. not cold yet. But you know what happens? When it starts getting down to the 40s in the early November, you start feeling cold. And then by mid-January, 40s is feeling great. Yeah. But I'm in that, like, I'm in that wimpy stage right now. I completely get it. Yeah, it's, I'm sure I didn't even go to the parade for Glover Teixeira. Because of how cold it was. I don't know if there was a parade. (laughs) Glover Teixeira got a hero's welcome uh, after winning the UFC light heavyweight title as he went back to uh, his adoptive home of Connecticut. I actually did the greats of the states piece on Connecticut this past week. He did come in number one. Uh, It was number one, Glover Teixeira. Number two, Nick Newell. Number three, William Knight. Parker Porter almost made the cut. Oh, man. If I'd gone all the way to five... He would have made the cut like states like, you know, Pennsylvania, <laughs> California, Arizona that have a ton of mixed martial artists. I went out to like five honorable mentions like I, I only did the two yeah. for. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. I can't even imagine where I had the list. <laughs> Can I make the cut? Dude, if if, if I went out to five, you might be there. Yeah. <laughs> like, hey, uh, as long as my opponent does it. No, he's he's way out there. <laughs> That's right, I mean, man. unless that's his only loss, he's like 18 and one now. I don't, yeah, I don't yeah, know. yeah. No, no, he lost every match. I mean, I, um, let me ask you this. So we're not even talking about the card yet. Do you f- – I feel a little hangover. I don't know if the back-to-back numbered events was a good thing. I feel heading in to this event, it was a little overshadowed. It's interesting. I was going to ask you kind of – a a take on that because of course last week UFC 267 was a numbered event certainly would have been a pay-per-view if it were not taking place at you know 10 30 in the morning for me here in the central time zone because it was in Abu Dhabi but it was a pay-per-view restaurant quality card by any measure then this weekend at Madison Square Garden they pulled out all the stops we have another loaded card with two title fights at the top both of them rematches, but both of them with you know a certain amount of intrigue, and then the rest of the card is largely stacked. Which are you more excited for, uh, two sixty seven or or two sixty eight? Well, it's it's tough because I I wish we asked me this a week ago because a week ago I would have said two sixty eight, mm-hmm. knowing the results of two sixty seven 
and knowing how great the card was, I think I gave it an A. I think you gave it an A yep. minus or so. Like no, I gave it an A also. Yep. Okay, so I, I like I think it should be nominated for event of the year. It had the feel good story. We had you know crazy knockouts, some wars. So it's kind of tough. In hindsight, I might go with that first card. But you know, in a vacuum, if you ask me a week ago, it's still got to be this card. There's no more name values. There's uh, the, the top of the card that like. We get you know we we'll get into the main event later, but Kamaru Usman versus Kobe Covington. Forget the rivalry, forget the backstories, forget all that. Just the skills of these guys are really good. Their first fight was incredible. Like we don't talk about it. It's one of the best fights I've ever seen from two guys. It, it's it's really good. So that obviously Rosemary Yunus and Wei Zhang is interesting. Michael Chandler versus Justin Gaethje is. There's no way that fight's boring. Nobody's talking about it. So that's why I'm asking, like, did the back-to-back numbered events, you know, when you have a when you have a fight night a week before pay-per-view, you can still stop peeking over to the pay-per-view during the week of the fight. You couldn't really do that last week. And I wonder if that backfired. Because no one, like, the Madison Square Garden, all this, like, no one was talking about that. I agree. If it had been just another fight night card last Saturday, by Monday afternoon... Sherdog's front page would have been all about this card. But instead, halfway through Tuesday, we're still talking about Glover Teixeira. We're, you know, we're still talking about everything that happened uh, last week. Yeah, still talking about about Hamzat Shemaev. Still talking about uh, is Islam Makachev ready for the top tier of of lightweights? That whole thing. Um, Yeah, I I agree. It might have been better for this card if there had been even just a week in between, you know, with nothing. Or there had been just a regular fight night card before it. And how about this? I've always thought that promoting is done backwards. And I'll, I'll tell you, I always see the smaller cards promote the big card. And that's what it seems like. Everyone goes to go, oh, yeah, you want, you know, 267 to promote 268. And I think it should be the opposite. I think a week before it should have been 268 because that's the pay-per-view. That's the names. Say, say it wasn't uh, Usman and Covington, but say it was one of the big names. Say it was Connor card. Well, all Joe Blows who normally don't watch will watch. Then you somehow you do the previews, you do the things, and you try to during the commercial breaks promoting the next card and see if you can get some of that like trickle down from you know from the people who's going to normally don't view. Maybe they're going to watch the next card because you sold something during that preview. You know, what I mean? does that make sense? Like, yeah, everyone who's watching two sixty seven is going to watch two sixty eight. But not everyone who watching 268 is watching 267. Yeah, I agree. It's the same way that for years and years, whenever one of the major TV networks is trying to debut a brand new show, they'll show the first episode right after the Super Bowl. Yes, you know that's right. Because they're right. going to take the most watched show of the year and use it to kind of launch their new thing. No, yeah, I, you don't I, do, I you agree. don't do the preview show. You don't do it before yeah. the Super Bowl, a half hour before. No. no. <laughs> No, the Super Bowl doesn't need the help, and yeah. that's not going to help. Yeah, that's, the, the yeah. littler show. Completely get it. Having said that, on paper, as, as you point out, this card might be better than 267. When it's all said and done, we're going to have a whole hell of a lot to talk about uh, Saturday night, Sunday morning, after all this happens. I mean, there's no way we don't come out of this without a ton of talking points in the strict sporting sense, as well as obviously the storylines. Yeah, that that's a good point. So the storylines, I think there's probably even more storylines this week than last week, which is crazy when we think about all the results. We were talking about uh, 
you know, love to share her. And the, like I said, again, the amazing feel good story. Petra Yon, Aljamain Sterling's th- thing going on. The, that whole debacle at Bantamweight. Hamazat just fe- looking like the next future star. There might even be more stories coming out of this one. I'll say this. The other card I think might have been deeper. Like, I don't think there was a fight on the other card where I was like, really, huh? Like, this one I'm not really interested in. There's two or three fights in this card, or someone's like, wow, how did that one get on yeah. this card? But name value, like, there's more, you know, name value. I mean, like, just the very fight on the top is is one that people are interested in. Yeah, can completely uh, agree on that one. Uh, like, for example, if you if you could only pick one fight from the two weeks, you could only pick one fight from the two weeks you could to watch. Everyone's picking the main event in this one. Yeah, completely. Uh, some people might sprinkle in the I mean, Gaethje and Chandler. But this... Uh, until, until John Jones books a fight, and I know that he's coming back, Kamaru Usman's the, the best male fighter on the planet. Like, he, yeah. he's... Yeah, he's the top pound-for-pound fighter in the world unless, right now. Unless there's this Russian guy that's coming on, coming back. And by that, I'm obviously I'm talking about <laughs> I'm talking about Shimayev. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's no other there's no other undefeated Russian guys that uh, that I, I can be talking about. Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, I mean, the that that seat is still warm and waiting for Khabib if he wants to grace us one more time. But if that last fight was the last we saw of him, hey, so few guys leave the sport on their own terms. You know, I'll I'll take it. Uh, let me say this before we move on. Even if John Jones comes back, I don't think John Jones is the best fighter in the world anymore. Accolades, yes. Ac- yeah, most ac- he's the most accomplished. Yeah, and uh, but most dominant right now, Usman. Yeah, yeah. You ready to dig into these? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Uh, first up on the UFC 268 prelims is a flyweight matchup between CJ Vergara and Ode Osborne. Vergara, the 30-year-old Texan, is 9-2-1 overall. This will be his UFC debut, and the moment he steps into the cage, he will cease to be the Fury FC flyweight champion. He enters the cage on a five-fight win streak, four of those in Fury, and then most recently he won on Dana White's Contender Series back on September 7th, destroying Bruno Mesquita. Uh, I think they called him Bruno Correa is his like Brazilian nickname with a gorgeous and painful looking step in knee in just 41 seconds. He will meet Osborne, the Jamaican sensation, uh, 29 year old out of Wisconsin is nine and four with one no contest overall. He is one and two since joining the UFC out of uh, season three of Dana White's contender series back in 2019. He defeated Brian Kelleher in his debut, or sorry, lost to Brian Kelleher in his debut, defeated Jerome Rivera in his second fight, and most recently appeared back in August at UFC 265, where he lost in the final seconds of the first round to Manel Kopp. Odds on this one are fairly close, but Osborne is the slight favorite. He's minus 170, Vergara around plus 150 on the comeback. Uh, Keith, two interesting uh, finish-oriented flyweights in this one. Who have you got, and uh, how do you think the fight plays out? Yeah, this is a dope fight right off the top. Like, this is going to be an action fight. It's it's exciting. Uh, I'll start with O'Day because we, you know, we've seen him in the UFC. His skill sets is a guy that I've really liked. Now, I don't know how I feel about him at flyweight. I, I'm not sure how much of a weight cut he does. I mean, he did make it last time, uh, and it was actually his opponent who missed the weight. 
but yeah, he's a big guy. He's long and, le- and lengthy. He's a southpaw. He's a good striker. I think he's very fast. He's explosive. I think he's accurate. I said it last time. I think his accuracy is a little overlooked. He he lands clean. Uh, he's got he's a he's he's aggressive but controlled. And and there's another guy on the card that I'm going to talk about that later on. There's someone who's aggressive but like controls his aggression. High output. I like that he when he comes in and he and he jumps in the pocket. He attacks with combos. He can work from the outside too. He uses a lot of like range finders. Teep kicks up the middle. His check left hook, uh, or should be, it would be his right hook because he's southpaw. His check right hook is something that he does well to keep his opponents at the end of his punches. Uh, good head movement in his defense, though he does pull his head straight back. Um, that wasn't the case against Manel Cop. Manel Cop was just perfectly timed knee, uh, but that that is going to get him caught by other fighters. He throws out the stupid spinning attacks. I don't, I don't, I know. I, I always say spinning attacks. I don't, I don't know anybody who's that, that effective. I mean, John Jones, early young John Jones was pretty effective. I guess Alexander Slamenko. But for the most part, I think they're a lot of wasted energy. But he also likes, like, flying knees. Like, he'll close the distance with a flying knee. Uh, he's he's good at he's good at staying all the out and then suddenly coming in uh, when, you're not, when you're not expecting it. He can be a little heavy on his front foot, which leaves him open to leg kicks. So that's something that uh, a fighter is going to attack him in, in the future. But he has hard leg kicks himself. Now, when it comes to the grappling, he's a three-time Wisconsin, I think, state champion or state finalist. And he was an NCAA wrestler. So he has a wrestling background. Though you ever hardly see him wrestle. And he's been taken down by mediocre wrestlers on the regional scene. And he's been held down and struggled to get back up. It's actually kind of like an Achilles heel versus a guy who's so so accomplished in this wrestling. Kind of uh, – one of these wrestlers that have a background like a Justin Gaethje, where suddenly you never see his wrestling, which I, I actually think he'd become an even better striker if he throws in some some submissions. If in a scramble though, he ends up on top. He's got like long arms. He kind of kind of punches through people's guards. He has a submission threat. He's got four subs on his record. Um, but one thing I don't like about, and I said this last time, he likes to drop down on stupid submissions like ankle locks and stuff. And he's not. That is. That's for the elite of the elite submission guys, not a guy like Ode Osmond. Or that's a, I'm losing its third period, uh, third round. I need something. Let's go do it. Now, now Vergara. Yeah, yeah. Now, Vergara, that's a guy from your home area, Texas. He's a Pete Spratt student, which is kind of a a, a team that's starting to really grow and kind of get more guys. I never would have thought Pete Spratt would be like a very successful head coach, but he's getting there. He has has a grappling coach. (laughs) That's oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I mean, like, but Pete Spratt, like the head coach, like that's his gym. I, mean, yeah. I, I love, I love that he, he's being successful. Um, so Vigar, as you mentioned, Fury fighting championship champion, which is a good organization when you're coming in. Uh, Dana, he has Dana White contender series experience. The one thing I don't like of him for someone who's making his debut, he's already 30. So he's kind of has to fast track and he's in the weight class where like 30 is old for flyweight where either, because one thing happens, either you're kind of done or you have already phased out of the division because you just outgrew. Very few people, Joseph Benavides at Flyway can spend most of his career there. He likes to box out of both stances. Uh, I, I say box, he's a very heavy boxing guy. He likes to throw down in the pocket. More of a, more of a slugger, more of a, uh, a brawler than 
you know, a, a technical boxer. He really sits on his punches. He does well to uh, throw as much power as he can, though he does load up a lot and it slows down his punches. But when he gets in the pocket, you see a lot of power shots, short hooks. He is, I think he's kind of slow. And, but I like his kicks. So even though I see he's a boxer, he, when he's in the southpaw stance and he's opposite of orthodox, he throws a, a lot of hard body kicks. I am really worried about his chin, though. Like he's, I go back to that Jacob Silva fight. That was probably the, the biggest marquee fight into his career. Da- Jacob Silva, obviously another he, uh, Texas guy. He's a uh, Dana White Contender Series guy, uh, vet, multiple, I think multiple time. He was rocked in that fight multiple times by Jacob Silva. Though, to his credit, he showed some tremendous heart and durability to fight back from that. He, in this fight, he should look to close in the distance because he's really good in the clinch. Like he's a very physically strong guy. He does well the battle in there. Uh, you go back to his fight on the contender series, the Bruno Correa guy. He he beat him up with knees to the body. Though he's not much of an offensive grappler, and he doesn't have a single sub on his record. So as far as prediction goes, I know I've talked way more on the opening fight than I think you expected. <laughs> um, this is going to be a fun fight. This could be an action fight. I think Vergara is a really good addition to the UFC flyweight division. But I feel like this is a bit of a mismatch. Vergara struggled with Jacob Silva and was hurt a lot. And Osborne is more explosive, more accurate, and hits much harder than Jacob Silva. I think Osborne works him from the outside with combos. And then I think he finds a knockout. I think he's going to knock him out in the very first round. So give me Ode Osborne to make a statement with a first-round knockout. Yeah, I'm I, I'm feeling a lot of what you're putting down here. Uh, I, I like a lot about Vergara. And he has made some incremental improvements in his striking over the years because you know i've seen i think at least three of his four last fury fights in person uh yeah i've seen him fight in person a lot i was there for the jacob silva fight uh and they're the the two guys i mean they have a lot in common they're almost mirror images of each other the main problem is that silva is a little more shop worn and silva when you get next to him he's small even for a flyweight by ufc standards you know Vergara was just a bigger fresher version of him his chin was a little uh better and just was able to outlast him but being a slightly souped up version of jacob silva is not going to be a recipe to get past ode osborne uh his best chance would be to get into his preferred boxing range close and either mug him with punches inside or clinch and hit him with some of those knees that he used to finish uh, Bruno Korea on the contender series. But that's the outside chance. The main chance is that uh, Osborne figures him out and just he Vergara is having to cross uh, Osborne's artillery the whole time for as long as this lasts. I'm with you. Like the, the matchup really favors Osborne, even if I think Vergara should stick around and should make a, a good, exciting addition to the division. This is a bad matchup for him. Assuming the weight cut does not compromise Osborne, that he looks, well, I mean, as good as he did for as long as the uh, cop fight lasts, this is his fight to win. Give me Osborne by second round TKO. Next up is a featherweight matchup between Melsic Bagdasarian and Bruno Souza. Bagdasarian, the 29-year-old Glendale Fighting Club product, is 6-1, in his mixed martial arts career, he is 1-0 since joining the UFC out of the 2020 season of Dana White's Contender Series. On that show, he defeated Dennis Bazookia by unanimous decision, then made his UFC debut this past July at UFC on ESPN Hall versus Strickland, where he knocked out Colin Anglin with a second-round head kick. 
he'll be taking on Souza, who steps in on fairly short notice for TJ Laramie, who I think had a staff infection. But uh, Souza, the 25-year-old from northern Brazil, protege of former UFC light heavyweight champ Lyoto Machida, is 10-1 and overall. This will be his UFC debut, but uh, he is, or will cease to be, the reigning LFA featherweight champ when he steps into the octagon. Uh, Bakdasarian is the strong favorite here. He is minus 300, Souza plus 250 as the underdog. Uh, from what I've seen of Bruno Souza, it's not surprising that he is a Lyoto Machida protege. Uh, he, he sets up in a similar stance. His movement is somewhat similar. And for the most part, it has worked for him at the LFA level. I mean, he lost his professional debut. Then he's won 10 straight since then, including some over some decent names. You know, he's beaten like, you know, uh, Camuela Kirk. But there's there's a reason that Lyoto Machida is the only one who's really, really made that style work at the highest level. You know, he, ha he had, he really still has an athleticism a cage awareness vision that are truly rare. There's not everybody can get in there with that, you know, bladed stance and the waving arms and just snake charm people. Against Bagdasarian, I think it's going to be tough sledding. Uh, this card has a surprising number of Glendale Fight Club representatives on it. Bagdasarian, former kickboxer, uh, you know, is actually one of the more promising ones in, in my mind. He's a, a hard hitter, aggressive guy. Uh, unsurprisingly, considering the source, doesn't have the best head movement, uh, but this is going to be uh, his fight to lose, in in my opinion. Like, I, I I think he's going to be able to find Souza. I don't think the elusive thing's going to work. Souza's going to want to, you know, bounce around on the outside, bounce in with his punches and his uh, sidekicks and head either back or out the side door before Bagdasarian can hit him back. I don't think that's gonna, that's going to work here. I think Bagdasarian is going to kick him to the legs into the body. I think he's going to counter his kicks with punches and just he's going to hit him hard and hit him early. Uh give me Bagdasarian by first round TKO. Yeah, uh this this is a really good fight again. I like this matchup. I think I'm a little higher in Bruno Silva than you are, but uh Bagdasarian as you mentioned Got a lot of pro and kickboxing experience, as you mentioned. He's the, I think he fought in K1. He had that. Um, I wrote down WLF World Kickboxing. I'm not a kickboxing guy. Like obviously, I know the big ones, Glory and K1. But you mentioned he trains with Glendale Fight Club. I'll say this about Glendale. Side note. I don't. I don't think that team is as bad as they get. They've gotten. The, the, I don't think they're as bad as the rap they've gotten. And they've actually kind of had a little bit of a turnaround lately. Um, so I'm actually rooting for that. Last time he fought, I wrote down, like, it is so hard to grasp this guy because he just knocks guys out so quick. I mean, his four fights to get into the UFC was seven-second, nine-second, 14-second, 32-second knockouts. <laughs> like, well, so what we have seen of him, Southpaw, very aggressive, very, very fast. Very explosive, extremely accurate. Uh, the one thing that stood out to me in his fight against Colin Anglin is that he was beating Colin Anglin at the point of contact, uh, kind of timing timing Colin pick coming in. Uh, I wrote down he hits very hard twice. <laughs> uh, he it's not even just that he hits hard; it's the force he brings. Like he, even when you block him, he moves you with the 
torque he kind of gets on his shots. His left hand is absolutely deadly. He had that incredible high kick knockout of Colin Anglin. Cardio obviously is a little bit of a question mark. That's one of my concerns when he hasn't gone deep into fights. So what happens if he can't get an early knockout, especially because he does swing so hard. Also, his ground game, his one loss, i not able to find, but it happened on the ground. Now move over to Bruno Silva. One thing, so this is some things why I think I'm a little higher on him. One of the things that drops off me is his age. He's 25 years old. So you know to me right away, if a guy's about 25 and under, I, I, I really tried not to have too much of an opinion on them yet. Obviously, we need to have some opinion, but I should say I don't, I don't have a finished opinion on it. Like I'm not going to categorize them like, ah, oh, this guy sucks, this guy's good, this guy's great, whatever. Uh, kind of goes everywhere. So he's in that in, he's in that age group. The Rashida Karate, all right, cool, whatever. Right. That that was a thing a long time ago. I like that he was an LFA champion. Like that's like you know if I start putting good bad good bad, uh, we've seen so many fighters had success coming from LFA. I like that he's beaten good guys. You mentioned Kamala Kirk, uh, Mike Hamill's guys and done well in Bellator. Uh, Miles Johns' brother Elijah Johns, like these are good wins. Uh, he didn't, he did miss weight against Elijah Johns. We should throw that out there. But what do you expect from a karate guy? A lot of stance switches. He he's a bit of a counter striker. He's not Leo, even though he fights under the Machida Karate. He's not Leo. Leo was a guy that would stay back, not have a high output, and try to end it with one fight. That's not really him. He's actually a pretty high output karate guy. Uh, fast hands. He does keep his hands down by his side, more of actually a Stephen Thompson style of karate than than uh, Leo Machida. I mean, Leo Machida obviously drops his hands more, but I'm saying exaggerated like like Stephen Thompson. A lot of kicks, a lot of front kicks, deep kicks up the middle. He's very elusive, good lateral movement. Uh, I like his fade back shot, so he likes to fade away from a shot and then come over with a counter. Uh, he can strike while backing up if you pressure him. He did show strong takedown defense against Elijah Johns, which I like. Uh, I, I, I'm not going to pretend I know as much about Elijah Johns as I know about Miles Johns, but Miles Johns is a really good wrestler. So I'm assuming Elijah Johns is probably from the same mode. Good get-up game when he was taken down. And he does have a few subs. They were early in his career, but he does have some f- subs on his record. So as far as the prediction goes, this is a 6-6 six, six stand-up battle. I am going to go with you. I'm going to go with Bagdasarian. He is the more decorated striker of the two. He's already fought in the UFC, so I don't have to worry. I don't think we have to worry about UFC jitters with him. Well, we might have to worry about that with Bruno Silva. Plus, Bruno is an output guy. This guy cracks Bagdasarian. He really generates power. We've seen it with all these knock, quick knockouts. So I say he catches Souza's chin. And get and I'm gonna be with you. I'm gonna say he gets it early. I'm gonna say he gets a first round knockout. So give me back to sign my first round TKO. There you go. But I want to say this before we move. I like that Bruno Silva's in. So even though I'm like picking a first round knockout, I think Bruno Silva is a good addition to the UFC. So that's why I was saying I was a little higher on him than you are. No, I I think he'll probably stick. You know, again, he's yeah. just 25 uh, and and has some good tools. But this this is rough sledding for his debut. Yeah. The UFC 268 prelims power on in the light heavyweight division with a another short notice opponent change as John Allen was originally scheduled to take on Alexa Kamer. 
Uh, Kamer is forced to withdraw, and I believe that one was a staph infection as well. And in his place, on about 10 days' notice, steps Dustin Jacoby. Uh, Jacoby, the 33-year-old Factory X product, is 15-5-1 overall. He is 3-2-1 in the UFC, but that is a little deceptive because he lost twice in an early run in the UFC, I think six years ago. Since coming back through Dana White's Contender Series last year, he is 3-0-1 in this most recent run. Uh, In between, he fought for glory kickboxing where he was a light heavyweight contender and, in fact, lost a match to a guy we'll talk about a little further up the card. Uh, He fought most recently in August where he knocked out Darren Stewart in the first round at UFC on ESPN, Barboza versus Chikadze. Uh, Alan, the 28-year-old Brazilian, is 13-6 and six with one no contest overall. Uh, he's had a bit of rough sledding uh, over the past three years or so. He appeared on Dana White's Contender Series Brazil uh, in 2018. He lost his appearance there, won one more fight in Brazil, and got a short-notice call-up to the UFC where he actually defeated Mike Rodriguez in his debut, but the debut was on short enough notice that he did not have a chance to cycle off all those vitamins. So that was reverted to a no contest when he uh, failed his uh, post-fight drug test. Uh, came back for his second fight, met Roman Deleeds, gave him a good fight, but lost a split decision there. And I believe that was the last fight before Deleeds dropped to middleweight. Uh, so where in the last fight, the change of opponents really doesn't seem to favor the fighter who's stepping up uh, stylistically. This one, Allen goes from Alexa Kamer, which certainly presents one kind of challenge to a short notice opponent in Dustin Jacoby, who in my opinion is going to be a nightmare for him. Uh, I would have favored Alexa Kamer to beat John Allen. I just, Allen is a promising guy, but just really hasn't quite proven himself to be UFC material at this point in his development. But with Kamer, I could see him hurting him, blitzing him on the feet. You know, uh, John Allen, he's a shootbox guy, and he fights like a shootbox guy. He is an aggressive Muay Thai-flavored kickboxer. But Jacoby is a bigger guy. He's a more experienced kickboxer. He's a better technical kickboxer. He hits with more power. And even though he's stepping in on short notice, I don't know if his gas tank is going to be a problem. Jacoby is a guy who has come in for fights just a couple pounds under the 205 pound limit. So it doesn't seem like it's a big deal for him. Uh, yeah. Like th- I think this is just uh, poor John Allen. The-, the guy can't catch a break. Um, and this, yeah, th- this is, this is a, a bad look for him. Uh, Allen's going to come forward. He's going to come forward swinging. And I think Jacoby's just going to chop him up. Uh, Jacoby's leg leg kicks are going to tell the difference. And uh, again, Jacoby, he's going to have better reach. He's going to have better power. He throws straighter punches. Uh, give me Jacoby. And I'll say this makes it to the second round, but it should be already rolling downhill by then. Give me Dustin Jacoby by second round knockout. Yeah, there should be a rule in the UFC that if your opponent drops out, the replacement punish should be an easier matchup. Like you shouldn't punish the guy who, you know, I didn't drop out of the fight. Why do I get a tougher matchup? Uh, you, you talked about Justin Jacoby. He really is one of these. He was forgotten. He made this magical comeback. We're like, oh wow, Dustin Jacoby, remember that guy? And he came back and he's been great. Uh, 
and I just I just want to keep happening. I just want to see how far he can go with it. It's it's cool. Like uh, you mentioned his glory kickboxing, good footwork. I love his lateral movement. Kind of little dodgeball in him. He's not he's not there wherever you're throwing. He's very technically sound. He cuts angles when he attacks, which is my favorite thing about him. He doesn't always tack on a straight line. He'll kind of tack, sidestep, coming from a different side. Uh, very busy jab. Kind of very Sean Strickland-ish where everything kind of builds off the jab. It's kind of his safe zone. Uh, he sets up strikes. Well, he he sets up his strikes with parrying his opponent's punches and – just in case people don't understand, with parrying and parrying is when, when a guy throws at you, you kind of block with your hands, but you block in a downward fashion. Uh, it's, it's very popular. And then you kind of – you almost like springboard off those to throw your own shots. So that's something he does well. I, I love that he just – he's so composed. He just touches and then unloads when there's an opening. It's actually very – Similar to who we're going to see in the main event, Colby Covington. Colby Covington is very just touch, 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 stay busy, stay busy, put stuff in your face. That's what he does. Uh, very, He's very good at the basic punches. And and I mean that, and I know I've said this before, I mean that as a compliment. Straight stuff down the, the pipe is, is the best way. But he also got some really good kicks, brutal calf kicks. You go back to the Justin Ledette fight. He, he, who's, Justin Ledette's known for his own kickboxing, and Dustin Jacoby was brutalizing him with calf kicks in like a minute. He's a weak wrestler. I mean, Ian Kuchitalaba took him down nine times. But to his credit, the reason why he took him down nine times is Dustin Kobe just kept getting back up. Now move on to John Allen. He's kind of undersized. We talked about this last time for a middleweight. He's 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 kind of small. He's southpaw. Uh, good output on the uh, on the feet, very aggressive. Really just marched down to his opponent and he wants to slug down, throw down in the pocket. Though he can be a little overhand happy, kind of throws these winging, especially his right hand, this winging things. He loads shoot up. Box. Every, huh? Yeah. Shoot, Very shoot yeah. box. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, more. So the only difference between him and Vandalay, well, Vandalay was a lot of crazy hooks. He's more mm-hmm. of a dipping overhand, which which is probably even worse because you, I think you lose even more power. Uh, though he, he, to his credit, he has plus power, I'd say. I wouldn't say he's a big knockout guy, but. Uh, defensively pulls his head straight back, which is a really defensive role. He's very hittable. I like his clinch game, though. He he's, can get in there and body lock a guy. Jacoby's not a – even though he's fought at light heavyweight before, he's not a massively big guy, so he, I could see him get inside and get some and clinch. This, one's, this one is taking place at light heavyweight. Oh, there you go. Why do yeah. I think this is middleweight? Uh, Delete's dropped to middleweight after after he beat Allen. Oh, why did I? Put... No, this this one's taking place at light heavyweight. Oh, I'm sorry. Why did I no. think this was a middleweight? Anyways, well, that makes me feel even better because I thought Allen was undersized already. Uh, he he's a good grappler. I'll give him that. Like, he he loves his guillotine choke. He has some submissions off his back, but he does struggle to get off from the bottom. So as far as the prediction goes, I think the best chance for Allen to win is to kind of close the distance, make this a very heavy grappling matchup. However. I think he struggles to get inside. I think Jacoby's movement is too good. I think he's too elusive. And I think he just makes him struggle to miss. And then just think Jacoby picks him apart from range and then sends him to the canvas. So this is what, our third fight? And I'm going to pick a third knockout. So give me Jacoby by second round TKO. There you go. Three fights up. Uh, Three fights with uh, unanimous picks from Keith and myself uh, for the knockout. Yeah, we we both called. 
No one. I I wrote down my notes. Kind of undecided. Probably should be a middleweight. So I oh, apologize. There we go. I apologize for screwing everybody up. I'm an idiot. Next up on the UFC 268 prelims. If you are familiar at all with the Shillin and Duffy previews or recaps of these events, you'll know that I often use a term, uh, the obligatory heavyweight slobber knocker, just the fight that competitively doesn't really belong, but the UFC will stick it on the card and often even just stick it on the main card out of the idea that casual fans love the heavyweights or, hey, we're going to get a crazy knockout. With that... This is the only heavyweight fight on this card, and all I can say is at least ben. it isn't on the main card. Ben, John Vellante already got tired from your introduction. <laughs> he's, sorry, he's, already, sorry he's already for that forearm choke. All I'm right. sorry. I know you prepared those. I'm sorry. Continue. I didn't. Hey, that, that was my preparation. It is John Vellante versus Chris Barnett. Uh, Vellante. The 36-year-old Long Island native. <laughs> Hold on, sorry to interrupt again. You just summed up John Vellante perfectly. You went, Vellante. <laughs> Next fight? Yeah. I wish. But hey, you came here because you want to hear between seven and 10 minutes on this fight. You're going to get that. Vellante, the 36 year old Long Island native, is 17 and 13 overall. He is 7 and 10 in the UFC. And if that doesn't sound very impressive, understand that he is. 0-2 at heavyweight. Uh, he moved up to heavyweight after a first-round knockout at the hands of Mihal Oleg back in February of 2019. Uh, came back last summer and fought Maurice Green at heavyweight. Uh, he lost by third round. We called it an arm triangle choke, but it was kind of a... It was a... Just go watch it. Came back again against a fellow uh, supersized former light heavyweight, Jake Collier. Uh, in December at UFC on ESPN, Hermanson versus Vittori, dropped a unanimous decision there. He is taking on Barnett. Chris Barnett, the 35-year-old Floridian, is 21-7 and overall. He is 0-1 since joining the UFC uh, earlier this year. Uh, he lost his UFC debut to Ben Rothwell by second-round uh, guillotine choke submission. I watch a lot of MMA, regional, international, high level, low level. I have to say that even in the era of COVID, Chris Barnett might be the most surprising UFC signing to me. Chris Barnett, if you didn't see the Rothwell fight or you weren't familiar with uh, his uh, performances internationally and, you know, on regional U.S., uh, you know, on the regional U.S. circuit, he is five foot nine. And he has fought several times at super heavyweight. I have seen him weigh in for fights at like 285 pounds. He, I, you know, I've said before on this show that William Knight looks like someone tried to make a human being out of bowling balls. Chris Barnett is like someone tried to make a human being out of just one bowling ball. Uh, he is, I'm pretty sure, the shortest heavyweight of the modern era. He's shorter than Alir Latifi, shorter than Daniel Cormier. Uh, he is a squat little tank of a man. And ahead of his fight with Rothwell, I actually picked him to miss weight. I thought this might be the UFC's first super heavyweight fight since uh, Josh Barnett versus uh, Gan McGee. He made weight, but he lost Good to reference. Rothwell. This fight, I'm sorry, you know, and I know this sounds like disrespect to the guys involved. It really isn't meant to be, because I'm not saying that Volante and Barnett have no business fighting. 
but they're they have no business fighting in the UFC right now. This fight is hot garbage. Um, if you want X's and O's, Barnett, considering that he is a five foot nine, two hundred and sixty five pound guy, is actually surprisingly nimble and explosive. You know, for as long as his gas tank lasts, he has gotten by on being able to bounce into range and like land overhands on much, much taller people. It just didn't work even on the faded ghost of Ben Rothwell. You know, Rothwell is just too fundamentally sound, too big, too tough. Uh, I should mention the odds here. It's almost a pick em. Uh Volante's minus 110, minus 115. Barnett's like minus 105. I didn't quite see him at even money as of Wednesday night when we're recording this, but those might fluctuate. But if they fluctuate, I expect the line will probably move in the direction of the better known fighter in Volante. So if you see value in Barnett, you know, you, you might get a bargain there. My problem is that the last thing Volante has left is his chin. Uh, like at light heavyweight, it, at light heavyweight, he was a powerfully built guy. And on, on the face of it, it wasn't a bad idea for him to move up to heavyweight. But just the way he's moved up to heavyweight appears to be by just like literally adding 40 pounds of gut. Like it's just, it's killed his gas tank. It's killed his speed and movement. And he was always kind of a plodding, like slow-footed guy, even at light heavyweight. His two fights at heavyweight have been so discouraging. I mean, he he lost to Maurice Green by a fatigue submission. He was stuck on his back. Green just kind of stuck an arm on his neck and Volante tapped. Green essentially hugged him to death. And then the uh, the fights against um, Jake Collier. Just his gas tank ran out again. He has just been so flat and so uninspired that, yeah, Barnett could just leap in and catch him with something and knock him out early. But if he doesn't, this is just going to turn into a grueling, grueling three round ordeal where Volante is too tough to get knocked out, uh, too strong to get taken down, but too tired to throw back any offense of his own. And it just, we end up with one of those fights where it's three rounds and there have been like 45 significant strikes thrown. Give me in, I guess, the slight upset, Chris Barnett by decision in the worst fight of the evening. My anti-fight of the night call. Oh, so God, I don't even know where to start in this fight. Uh, I love that you took forever to get to the gambling odds when you usually put it out there like this shouldn't be any gambling odds like if you're if you're gambling on this fight you're a real degenerate because oh, well, you can't of course. confidence. kind of like college football games have odds but when alabama is playing council bluff school of trucking you know from like the <laughs> division like the, you know from the fcs in their second game of the year as a warm-up you don't get odds on that that that's what this fight should be yeah so like what do you think John Volante is doing like right now. Like right, I, I just picture so it's Wednesday night. He's eating a bratwurst. Yeah, I just think like <laughs> so we're getting close to fights. I see like Kam- Kamaro Usman like pummeling with someone right now, just trying to get a sweat going. Uh, Rose Nami Yunus is grappling, you know, uh, whatever. Guy Kobe Covington is doing pad work. John Volante is like probably separating his Halloween candy into categories. Like that's what I picture him doing. Like, I, instead of talking to this fight, I'd rather, like, discuss, what do you think, like, John Vellante's favorite Halloween candy is? Like, Butterfinger, he's Reese's Pieces, what, like, what is... What, what something, with, something with nuts, like a Snickers or Payday or something. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah, <laughs> this fight would be more interesting if you just gave one of them a Twix, and then told, and then the, the other guy had to try to get like you know one half, and they just they fought to see who can get the <laughs> Twix at the end. Uh, so I did. I want to be honest. I did absolutely no tape study on John Volante for this fight. I did tape study on, on Barnett. Volante, he's a low output striker. To his credit, he has pretty powerful light kicks. They got to mention that he played for Hofstra football. Um, he has a wrestling background. They're going to they got wrestling. They're going to mention his wrestling background, though he'll never use it. Uh, he his cardio is gone. He has some power because he's heavyweight, but as you mentioned. He lost to Maurice Green in the saddest way possible. He's carrying 30 more pounds, 40 more pounds than he probably should. Being that it's a couple of days after Halloween, it might be 40 or 50 pounds now. Uh, I feel like John Valencia just stopped fighting. and They should give him – like he seems like – I know they always talk about his personality. He's such a nice guy. He's funny. He's like – like when when – Chris Weidman was the best fighter on the planet and one of the best fighters on the planet. He was like entourage. He was like his uh, Johnny drama. Like oh yeah. That was, that was John Volante. Like to Chris Weidman, uh, whatever the, whatever the main character's name was. Uh, that's an entourage reference to all you young guys, young people who don't, don't, uh, don't remember that entourage era. I feel like John Volante is just like, he's cool. They like him. They love Dana has this like some kind of thing going on with Sarah Longo team and Matt Sarah and these guys. Like, you know that big, tall, bald guy who like separates the fighters when they're about to face off and they're gonna fight. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. just keep John Volante that that job. Like, let John Volante be the when when Colby Covington and and Kamar Usman get each other's face at the, the weigh-ins. Like, he's the guy who gets gets in between. Like, he'd be perfect for it. It would. He'd be perfect for it. And then you don't have like Sean Shelby getting thrown off the stage that's right. by, you know, that's, John Vellante. Like, that's yeah. a, it's a new job. And that's it. That's my prediction for the fight. John Vellante. No, uh, uh, Barnett, you mentioned five, nine, two, C five. I heard someone say like, he, he said that he lost weight cause he was going to have a heart attack. Like he, he knew, like I had to get down to two sixty five. Uh, he's Southpaw. He does have a Taekwondo background. Uh, he, you mentioned it yourself. He's surprisingly pretty good movement. He he throws a lot of kicks. Uh, as far as boxing goes, no technique at all. Just wild haymakers. Just uh, he throws his punches from his hips. He'll throw a Superman punch, but he's the only guy who throws a Superman punch. And I think he I think he clears the ground like a a quarter of an inch when he does it. Uh, he, he he throws the slowest spinning <laughs> attacks ever. It, it, it actually looks like that. What was that guy's name? Hasbula? When he yeah. when he tries throwing the kick at the other. I don't know what the other guy is. The other midget guy. Uh, anyway, he's very hittable. He backs straight up. Ben Rothwell was murdering him with uppercuts when he was ducking his head. Ben Rothwell mentioned that in his post fight interview. Like, yeah, he kept. I noticed he kept ducking his head, so I decided I'm just gonna throw an uppercuts, and then he couldn't miss an uppercut, and then eventually uh, dropped him. And uh, he does have a wrestling background. But he showed really bad takedown defense. He struggled to get back up to his feet against Ben Rothwell. And and fairness, excuse me, Ben Rothwell is a pretty good grappler. He's always kind of has been. But he was uh, submitted by Ben Rothwell, and he had no submissions on his record. So who am I going? Uh, with tons of regret, I'm going to take John Volante. 
And I'm going to take John Volante for a couple reasons. One, I refuse to take a heavyweight who's under five foot nine unless that heavyweight is Daniel Cormier. Second of all, I was on the fence, and my plan was whoever Ben takes, I'm going to pick the other person. person. So come on, John Volante. Come on, Hoster. What's, what's Hoster's mascot? The Let's, Flying Dutchman. Oh, that's what it is. Yeah, you said that. Come on, Flying Dutchman. Let's get it done. What, what position did he play? Like DN or – no, he, I think he was a linebacker. You look at him now and you'd be like, oh, that dude was a guard. But no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's go. Let's go number 67 for the Hofstra Flying Dutchman. I'll take him by second round knockout. All right. Our first dissension, and you can tell we're both heavily invested in this one. All, all the marbles riding I, on this. I just imagine somebody is driving their car. They could listen to... Sports radio, music, and they go, why the hell am I listening to these two freaking guys? <laughs> this is why we timestamp them, folks. If you didn't care about this fight, you could have skipped it. Next up, it is the third fight in our first five matchups featuring someone who had to set down a belt in order to make his Octagon debut as it is departing Cage Warriors welterweight champ Ian Gary making his UFC debut against Jordan Williams. Gary, the 23-year-old Irishman, is a perfect 7-0 in his mixed martial arts career. Uh, he is fought entirely under the Cage Warriors banner, having won all seven of those fights, defeated UFC vet uh, Rostam Akman earlier this year, defeated Jack Grant to win the Cage Warriors title in June. And just like that, the UFC snaps him up, and here he is. He takes on Williams, the... Uh, 2020 Dana White's Contender Series alum is 9-5 and five with one no contest overall. He's 0-2 in the UFC. Uh, has a little bit of a story to him. He got signed after knocking out Gregory Rodriguez, Robocop, on the Contender Series last September. Debuted against Nasruddin Imavov, whom we will see a little further up this card, and lost a unanimous decision. After that, he actually... Uh, treated his type 1 diabetes, got on proper insulin treatments, didn't have to take dog insulin anymore like an uninsured American, and uh, dropped to welterweight, the weight class where physically it looks like he probably belongs, only to run into Mickey Gall and lose by first round uh, submission. So it's been a bit of a bummer of a run for Williams, and here's his chance to turn it around and the odds do not favor him to do so, as Gary is one of the biggest favorites on the card. Uh, the Irishman is minus 360 as of the time of this taping. Williams plus 300 as the underdog. Keith, Jordan Williams, it's hard not to root for the guy. Uh, he seems like a good dude. He's got a rough story. He's also got a rough matchup here. How do you see this one going? Yeah, talk about a weird UFC run. The guy knocks out Gregory Rodriguez which has aged really well. Yes. And then got absolutely taken down and smoked by Mickey Gall. Like, what? It's just so weird. Um, so he's undersized, knocks out a guy who is extremely big, from, like just jacked up, looks like a real-life superhero, and then loses to Mickey Gall, who we were ready to put on our cut list. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about Gary in a second because – I, you know, I got to build up our suspense for all the European viewers because they're going to go crazy. They love this guy. But uh, Jordan Williams, he's athletic. He's a southpaw. He can be too aggressive at times. He gets hit a lot because of it. 
but he has fast hands. He does have power in both of his hands. His straight left is a really good strike. He drops his hands, but to his credit, he does well to bounce his head off the center line. Um, but he's not Anderson Silva, so he does get tagged a little bit. Decent wrestler, has fast entries, but then he was, when I said it, saying like, wow, he's stuffed takedowns against some good people. Mickey, as we already mentioned, Mickey Gall took him down and submitted him. So I really don't have a grasp on his ground game. Uh, he had a really hard time getting back to his feet against Mickey Gall, and he has given up his back in fights. If he ends up in a scramble, he has good ground upon. Um, and then again, he got beat by Mickey Gall on the ground. Now move over to Ian Gary. So this is a guy that he's got a lot of excitement. He's a cage warriors champion. He's uh, from Ireland, long and lengthy fighter. He's very athletic, very aggressive on the feet. He, he's aggressive, but composed. So he's, he's control. He controls his, his output. That's what I should say better. Not, not aggressive. He's controls his output where he has good output, but he doesn't stay wild. He stays tactical and uses feints well to draw out attacks, good head movement. I like a Chris, Chris and busy jab. He just, he throws the jab to sting, but he also throws the jab just to score points. Uh, his last fight against uh, Jack Grant is a perfect example of it, where he was just like, Jack Grant was standing right in front of him, and he, and he jabbed about 15 times in a row before Jack Grant threw a shot, and he's like, eh, I'll score points with this. Uh, calf kicks, he targets the calves. Fast high kick, and when he gets inside, he's a judo black belt. He's a strong wrestler. He's got heavy top pressure, good ground a pound. I, in scrambles, he likes to look for like darces and, and he likes to attack the head, you know, head front headlock series type things. If, if you're come from wrestling background, some negatives though, he drops his hands. I don't like that. I think his grappling might be a little overrated. I mean, go back to his last fight against Jack Grant. Jack Grant took his back like two or three times in that fight. That was early, and he did find a way to get out of it. And this guy's, which I didn't mention, this guy's very young. I think he's like what twenty three. Uh, another thing I like about him, well, one, he's coming in from Cage Warriors, which is a great organization to have experience with. He's also fought in title sh- fights. He's, he's the reigning champion. So that's good. Like, he's he's had pressure. He's felt big moments. Like, a main event in Cage Warriors is close. Like, not a, it's a small step up to, to, you know, prelims of a UFC. And I like that he's gone 25 minutes. He's shown that he has a cardio to go hard. As a prediction, though, I'm not ready to crown Gary the greatest fighter ever that it seems like Europeans want to. It it, kind of seems like they'd like to do that a lot with Cage Warriors champions. But I am picking him. Uh, I I just can't trust Williams after his last fight. I like Gary, so, like, hear me out. Like, I think he's going to do well in the UFC. I'm not ready to crown him a future champion like a lot of people are. But I'm willing to say, like... a pause. Like I'm willing to put a pause on him and not really give my opinion on his on his ceiling yet because he because he's so young, uh, and I do see some nice skills. I think he works from range. I think he outworks Williams from that distance. When Williams comes crashing in, I think Gary takes him down, works him on the ground. I'm going to say Williams getting submitted by Gall was more of an outlier. Like I think he's going to make it to a decision, but I think Gary wins by decision. Yeah, I had high hopes for Williams' drop to welterweight. And I even forgot to get in one of the main parts why he's just kind of an easy guy to root for. It was on his third try on the Contender Series that he finally got into the UFC. Like, I'm not saying he's, like, you know, 
Glover Teixeira in terms of like, you know, underdog Cinderella story. But he's a guy that it's easy to root for him to do well because he has a little bit of that little engine that could uh, vibe to him. But this this is a rough matchup, mostly because when I watched Williams fight, it isn't specifically that he has defensive lapses on the feet or he has defensive lapses on the ground. The only way I can describe it is he's very susceptible to his opponent's offense, no matter what that offense is. It just seems to be pretty easy for opponents to make their game work against him. Imovov wanted to outstrike him and was able to, even though he's not any kind of sensational striker. And then Gall just really overwhelmed him on the ground. And even though Gall is a grappling specialist, he seemed like physically overpowering against Williams in a way that he really hasn't against other UFC welterweights. If Williams brings that same dynamic to this fight where what Gary wants to do is just going to kind of magically work, that's going to make for a short night of work. Uh, I like Gary a lot. Like you, though, I'm I'm not ready to pronounce him the future king of anything. I mean, we're about to talk about Edmund Shabazian next. So the the dangers of prematurely crowning a guy in his early 20s who hasn't faced that next level of adversity yet. Uh, you know, like those those dangers are manifest. But this is going to be Ian Gary's night. Uh, give me Gary by second round finish. And even though he has more knockouts than submissions, I believe, I'm going to say by submission. Like, just Williams looked so inert on the ground against Gall. And if he was like that against Gall, then against Gary, who is a bigger, stronger, more dynamic guy on, on the ground, even more so. So give me Gary by second round submission. We now head to the middleweight division and a matchup between Edmund Shabazian and Nasruddin Imovov. Shabazian, the 23-year-old Californian, is 11-2 overall. He's 4-2 since joining the UFC out of the second season of Dana White's Contender Series. He is currently on a two-fight losing streak, those losses comprising the only losses of his career. He got knocked out in the third round by Derek Brunson back in the headliner of UFC Fight Night 173 last August. He came back this May and dropped a uh, unanimous decision to Jack Hermanson at UFC Fight Night Font versus Garbrandt. He'll be taking on Imovov, the 26-year-old uh, fighting out of Paris, is 10-3 and overall. He's 2-1 in the UFC. He defeated Williams in his debut, lost a majority decision to Phil Hawes back in February, and then bounced back from that with a second-round TKO of Ian Heinish at UFC on ESPN Sandhagen versus Dillashaw in July. Odds on this one are very close. Imovov is just the slightest of favorites right now. He's about minus 115. Shabazian uh, close to... Uh, even money right now around uh, minus 105. It's interesting that we're talking about this right after talking about Ian Gary and then just a week after talking about Hamzat Shemaev. But it's easy to forget that Shabazian was kind of the last version of Shemaev to come out because he's a guy that came into the UFC undefeated and beat a couple of kind of borderline UFC quality guys with complete ease and then beat a serious guy so easily that the UFC really had no option but to give him a little too much too soon. Uh, for Shabazian, it was when he lamped Brad Tavares because, okay, he 
beat Charles Bird. He beat Jack Marshman. Okay, fine, whatever. You're a 21-year-old prospect on your way up. When he destroyed Brad Tavares, who Tavares was a borderline top 15 guy at, at the moment, and nobody had made it look that easy, all of a sudden he needed to be rushed along a little bit. I don't think he needed to be rushed all the way to Derek Brunson, but Derek Brunson was clearly too much too soon for him. And when they matched him up after that with Jack Hermanson, I think I commented in my column that week back in May that for a guy that needed to build back confidence and go back to the drawing board after the Brunson loss, matching him up with Hermanson was like throwing a drowning man an anvil. Uh, he lost to Hermanson, and the Hermanson fight looked about like the Brunson fight. He won the first round with his aggression, his hand speed, uh, his frenetic output. Then he hit a wall and got thrashed. In the case of Brunson, he got finished in the third round. In the case of Hermanson, the rest of the fight was all one-way traffic. Hermanson logged a 10-8 round there in, in the third round. So basically, Shabazian has two copies now of the same notes to take back to the drawing board against at least top 10 level UFC middleweights. He either needs to work on his gas tank or work on his approach because he is getting outlasted and then physically overpowered by older, stronger, more seasoned fighters. He has two copies of those notes now, but more importantly, the UFC seems to have caught up and in giving him Imovov, I actually like this matchup a lot. Imovov is also in his 20s. He's much closer to Shabazian, both in fight experience and in age. And more importantly, he's nowhere close to the UFC top 10. Like, Shabazian needed a huge step back. He's still only 23 years old. Uh, as you point out, it's easy to give Glendale Fight Club a little too much of a bum rap just because, I mean, let's be honest, just because Edmund Tavertian is so such a buffoon. He, he just comes off as so clownish that it's very easy to kind of play up the failures of their fighters. Uh, but, you know, he's he's always, you know, been able to put good fighters into the UFC. He was he's essentially been Ronda Rousey's only coach ever. And she's another person whose accomplishments sometimes get minimized because of how it ended. I like this matchup a lot. And honestly, this isn't Shabazian's last chance in the octagon. Like if he loses, I, I don't think he's going to get cut even on three losses. He's only 23. He still won his first four fights in the UFC. And, of course, there is the Ronda Rousey connection. There's always the chance they can get Rousey there for, like, photo ops and open workouts during fight week like they, you know, have for several of his fights. So he, he's not going anywhere. But he is very much regressed back to, okay, you're just, you're just another prospect in the UFC right now. Like, I know your nickname's the Golden Boy, but right now you're another undercard developmental guy. And if you want to prove any different, you're going to need to do it. Like the coronation is over and it starts with beating Imovov. And I don't know if he gets past Imovov. Uh, I think this fight is just going to be like a slightly diminished version of his last two. I expect him to come out hot. I expect him to hurt Imovov in the first round, win the first round, outland him probably by a ton. It'll be one of those things where at the end of the first round, the official strike totals are like 42 to 11 and Imovov, you know, almost got 10 aided. And then I expect Shabazian will probably hit the wall. He's lucky that Imovov isn't going to be like Brunson and just take him down and squash him into, like, peanut butter. But uh, Imovov will start out landing him, start hurting him. Give me Imovov by decision just by losing the first round and winning the second and third. Yeah, you, you said if 
uh, Shabazzian losing, he, he should be kept in the UFC. I mean, if John, John Vellante still in the UFC, uh, I hope they don't give up on 23-year-old Edmund Shabazzian. Uh, yeah, same as I said earlier, like, based on his age, like, Edmund Shabazzian could be a completely different fighter than we've seen in his last two fights. But also, like, taking a huge step down in competition, even though I like him enough, like, uh, you said he's nowhere near the top 10. I I think he's creeping there. I mean, he's got some good wins recently. But I get your, I get your point. It's your, your point, your general point was a huge step down from Jack Hermanson and Derek Brunson. Derek Brunson could be fighting for the title soon. Mm-hmm. So uh, I get what you're saying. So what we've seen of Edmund Shabazian, he's a long rangy striker. He's pretty, pretty technically sound. I mean, that's the guy who's going to grow up in the gym. He's accurate, long jab. I like his check left hook. He has some good power in that. He's really good at wrapping his punches around his opponent's high guards. If you kind of keep your hands right, he's, he's got good vision to kind of throw it at an angle where he's got to land in between the spots. I like that he attacks the body. That shows a lot of things, some maturity. Good snap on his punches. Good power. And the thing I want to stress about his power, like he's a guy, as you mentioned, like starts Brad Tavares, which is which is an incredible win. He's still 23. Like, he might not even come into his power yet. Like, he's still developing uh, muscles. And, you know, usually it's about 27, 28 when you really start finding your power. Uh, some negatives, he doesn't check leg kicks. He does need to improve his takedown defense. He really struggled on the bottom against Derek Brunson, against Jack Hermanson. Hermanson is a really good grappler, mm-hmm. as you mentioned. And Derek Brunson is a really good wrestler. Like, strong, heavy, just... I mean, that's the guy who's developed into his power. He's, you know, um, but a bigger issue that I have, and this is the big red flag with Edmund Shabazzian, is the cardio. And um, we've seen him gas out. We saw him gas out against Derek Brunson. We saw him gas out against Jack Manson. Those two I give him a pass on. The one that I'm worried about is when he gassed out against Darren Stewart in a fight that he was winning. And it became a much closer fight where he was like hanging on to the end. Like, is Darren Stewart going to stop him? You know, is this going to be a big comeback? Like, that worries me. But that could be just he needs a little adjustment. Maybe it, it, we'll talk about uh, Justin Gaethje later. Maybe he needs to pull back a little bit of his shots. Maybe he doesn't need to unload as much. Like, little, the one little adjustment could completely change his game to be much better Friday. Now, move over to Emovov. As you mentioned, Emovov is like 26 himself, so he's still young. Uh, first thing to stand to me, he's well-rounded. He's a very composed striker, very technically sound, good footwork, good movement. Uh, he's a counter striker. He drops his hands and relies on head movement, uh, which I don't know how I feel about that for him. But he's got fast hands. He's got nice snap on his punches. I love his his fade back right hand. Uh, very um, very Conor McGregor, except for, you know from the from the right side. Good power. I mean, look at his even fights that he lost. He lost. He was losing to Phil Hawes and hurt him bad. And I said this last time. I'm gonna say it again. If he didn't respect the power of Phil Hawes, if that was somebody else, he might have put him out. Like Phil Hawes was ready to be done, and he he was a little hesitant to go in for the kill because of how explosive and hard a hitter that Phil Hawes is. I like his clinch striking. He he gets in there. He batters. I like that he will sneak in takedowns. Good entries. I like that he's relentless in his takedown attempt. Like, he'll miss the takedown and he chain wrestles his his attempts together. Uh, solid top control, solid ground and pound. He is a submission threat. Uh, in his fight against Jordan Williams, he had him in a deep guillotine in that fight. And then 
one of the negatives we had about him recently was his takedown defense. But then against Ian Heinish, he showed tremendous takedown defense. So as far as the prediction goes, this is a really tough one just because of what I was saying about Shivazi and, like, I'm worried uh, that he's so young. Like, what you was trying to stress, don't give up on this guy yet. Like, I feel the same way. Don't, like, don't give up on this young guy. But I'm with you, man. We got two votes for Imovov. He's going to have to withstand an early onslaught because Shabazian's a fast starter. Um, he has shown a finishing ability. But if he can get past that and Shabazian hasn't improved uh, his cardio, he hasn't found a way to survive those second and third round, Imovov is not the striker you want to be tired against. So give me Imovov. I don't think he finishes Shabazian because I don't know if he has that killer instinct, but I think he can kind of piece him up in the second and third round. So give me Imovov by decision. There you go. Two picks for Nasruddin Imovov to weather the storm and continue the uh, ongoing stretch of misery for the former blue chip prospect, Edmund Shabazian. We will stay in the middleweight division for the next matchup, which is Phil Hawes versus Chris Curtis. Hawes, the 32-year-old New Jersey native by way of Sanford MMA, is 11-2 overall. He is 3-0 since making his long-awaited debut last year. Uh, he actually attempted to get into the UFC through uh, the Ultimate Fighter, where he lost in the qualifiers to eventual season winner Andrew Sanchez, and also the first season of Dana White's Contender Series, where he lost to uh, current UFC middleweight Julian Marquez. He finally uh, won his way onto uh, roster last September by knocking out Kajimrat Bestaev. Since joining the UFC, he is 3-0, having beaten Jacob Malkoon, Nasruddin Imovov, and most recently back in May, Kyle Dawkins, uh, over whom he took a unanimous decision at UFC on ESPN Rodriguez versus Watterson. Hawes will be welcoming Curtis to the Octagon uh, for his debut. Curtis is 26-8 overall, 34-year-old out of Cincinnati, Ohio. He uh, he fought on the first season of Dana White's Contender Series, knocked out Sean Lally, but back in those days, it wasn't more or less a guaranteed thing that if you won on the show, you were signed. So he actually didn't get a contract. He went to Professionals Fighters League where he had some mixed results. He fought at welterweight and lost three in a row to Magomed, Magomed Karamov twice and to Ray Cooper. So at least he lost to the two best welterweights in the promotion. After leaving PFL, he won uh, five straight in a variety of promotions, including the rebooted and resurgent XMMA in Florida to get this call up. Uh, Hawes, a strong favorite here, minus 310. Curtis, plus 250 as the underdog. Keith. Uh, Phil Haas, an example of the kind of the opposite phenomenon as a Edmund Shabazian, where as soon as he came into MMA with his college wrestling credentials and started knocking people out in 90 seconds, he was immediately crowned one of the top young prospects in the sport. And it almost seems overdue or yeah. almost seemed overdue mm -hmm. when he finally made it to the UFC at age 31 a year ago. But He's looked very good ever since, and I, you can argue that it was the best thing for him because those kind of early setbacks that we're watching Shabazi and take under the brightest lights, Haas has worked a lot of those wrinkles out uh, yeah. earlier on in his career. Right, tell me how you feel about this fight, and Haas at 32, do you still think he has contender upside? 
Yeah, I think that was a, a very fair assessment. Like Phil Hawes was being called the next John Jones, if you remember that. Like and then mm-hmm. that was when they both hit the same gym and whatnot. But when he was on the Ultimate Fighter, that's how they were like booking it. Like, oh, this is the guy. He's going to win the Ultimate Fighter, and then he didn't even win the fight to get in the house. But that's how they were like marketing him. I remember watching him fight live at a Bellator, and it was the curtain jerker of the evening. And I was like, wow. Boy, has this guy fallen the wrong direction. And then he turned it around, and he's been really good. He's a very explosive athlete. That's the thing. That's why everyone's so high on him. He's elite of the elite athletes. He's aggressive. He's got fast hands, works behind a jab. He's got, like, earth-shattering power in his hands. He does well to bounce his head off the set of line. Very powerful kicks, calf kicks. Uh, crushing high kick. He th- he throws the high kick even if you block it just to kind of force you to block. And then just a high kick always looks good. Even when it's blocked, it always looks like you score points. The crowd still goes, oh, uh, he's a very, very good wrestler. I believe he was a junior college national champion wrestler. We've had, Kamaru Usman was a junior college wrestler, so don't look down on junior college. Lightning fast entries. He's, he's one of the guys, he's more explosive than he's technical. He'll just drive right through your hips on top. Smothering top control. He's added a very like grappling game to it to his uh skills recently, like good back takes. He does need to learn how to conserve energies. We've seen him slow down. We saw it against Emo off. Uh, but I love that even when he and I said this last time we talked about him, even though he's gotten hurt, he's found ways to survive where before he wouldn't have, he would have been taken out. Now, Chris Curtis, I'm glad that he that he stepped up was willing to take a fight against Phil Hawes a couple weeks ago on a day's notice. This guy's been knocking on the UFC door. He's done everything he needs to, to get in and still can't find a way to get in. I'm finally happy. He found a glitch like, okay, me just being at the UFC and volunteering. Okay. That'll, that'd be the way, but this guy has really good experience. He's fought in the contender series. He's fought in the PFL. He's won the CES title. He's won other regional titles. My one big concern for him is that was at 170. This fight is at 185. And Phil Hawes is already a massive dude. So he's going to be giving up some size. Though I, Chris, Chris Curtis is a big dude himself. Like, he's not a small welterweight. Like, I've met him because he fought in CS stuff. I've met him a couple times. Like he's a wicked nice dude. But he's still going to give up size to Phil Hawes. But what I like about him, he's a southpaw. He's a very compact striker. He's pretty technically sound. He likes he likes the pocket box. He wants to be in close, throw down, a lot of uppercuts. I would say plus power. I'm not sure how that's going to translate moving up, but I, I'm just guessing he's a guy that that power will follow with him, though he's not a one-punch, put-you-out kind of guy. He's more of a compiler. He's one of the guys who kind of butchers your face first, and then you kind of like the – you know, was that the one straw that breaks the camel's back? One of those, like, just kind of just keep piling on. Or he's more of the uh, that coin game at the at the arcade where you flip the coin in and you hope it falls on the pile and you hope it's that's the one that makes all the coins pushes fall out. The... Yeah, yeah, that that's kind of his power. Uh, some of the things I do, I like that he targets the body. That shows his intelligence. Uh, leg kicks are good, though he doesn't throw them enough. But he did have that like hook kick knockout in the contender series. He doesn't handle pressure. He backs up straight to the cage, which I don't like. He also makes a mistake of pillaring. He's he's a guy who kind of tries to hide behind his punches, very Tito Ortiz's. But to his defense, he rolls with the punches a lot. So it does take away some of his opponent's power 
uh, or the effects of their power. My big, big concern for him, though, is this is a guy who's been gun-shy at times. He will throw one strike and be – he just seems like a guy that he's been so close to the UFC. He's already been gun-shy. Will he be really gun-shy in his UFC debut, especially against a guy who's as physically imposing and scary as, as Phil Haas? As far as grappling goes, I see he's an average wrestler at best. He will go for Tim takedowns. He's more of a guy to push against the cage, drop down your hips, then like explode through. Uh, pretty good top game. Uh I would say okay takedown events. I've seen him get taken down, uh, but he has good cardio. He's going 25 minutes. So I like pretty, I like Curtis. I think he's a good addition to UFC. I think he'll stick around for a while. I don't think he has like top 15 upside or anything. I think, think he'll be a mid-card, middle-of-the-card kind of guy. But I think Hollis is a bad matchup for him. He's bigger. He's stronger. He's more explosive. I've seen Curtis hurt by a guy like Wilfredo Santiago on, on the regional scene, and Hawes hits much harder than Santiago. I think Hawes hits him. I think he finds an end, and I think he puts him out early. Give me Hawes my first-round knockout. Great. I agree. It's nice to see Chris Curtis finally make it to the UFC. He's kind of wandered in the wilderness for a few years, always been – I mean, not one of the tippy-top most interesting guys outside the UFC, partially because he was already into his 30s and, and you know, like had such a rough run on PFL. But I'm glad to see him make it to the UFC. I've seen, I saw both of his fights in XMMA. And honestly, before the first one, I'd, I'd almost forgotten about him a little bit. Like the, the PFL run, I was like, all right, the, you know, this guy's done. Like I'll, I'll probably never really hear much about him again. But he looked good in both of those fights. Uh, in beating Kyle Stewart at XMMA uh, last year, and that one was was actually at middleweight. He gave up a lot of size to Stewart, and Stewart is no Phil Hawes, but he's a pretty good fighter. And I saw Curtis do things that he could leverage against uh, Hawes. He worked the body. He stayed calm and poised against a fighter who was beginning to tire out and just kept putting more pressure on him until he like went in for the kill in, in the third round. If he can... If he can evade and outlast uh, Hawes' offense early on 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 the feet, that's some, certainly something he could make work. But again, that's the outside chance. I'm not picking that to happen. I am going to pick uh, Curtis to hear the final horn here. But uh, give me Hawes by a lopsided beating where he puts a lot of punishment on Curtis and maybe Curtis rallies to at least to either win the last round or make it, you know, close and competitive, show a little spark of something that will make the UFC excited to book him going forward, whether that is at 170 or 185. Second from the top of the nine-fight prelim card of UFC 268 is a lightweight matchup between Al Iaquinta and Bobby Green. Iaquinta, the 34-year-old New Yorker, is 14-6-1 overall. He's 9-5 since joining the UFC out of the 15th season of uh, The Ultimate Fighter. There he lost in the, the all-Italian-American finale to current welterweight contender Michael Chiesa. Uh, but he fought most recently in October of 2019, dropping a unanimous decision to Dan Hooker. Prior to that, he fought in May of 2019, losing to Donald Cerrone also by unanimous decision. So he brings a two-year-old two-fight losing streak into the octagon this Saturday. He'll be taking on the uh, equally frustrating but much busier Green. The 35-year-old Californian is 27-12-1 overall. He's 8-7-1 since joining the UFC 
uh, along with the Strike Force acquisition in early 2013. Green is also on a two-fight losing streak, though, uh, in fairness to him, they are against two of the division's strongest up-and-comers in Tiago Moises, uh, who beat Green by unanimous decision at the UFC's Halloween card last year, and then most recently, back in August, Rafael Fiziev, who also defeated him by unanimous decision at UFC 265 in Houston. Odds on this one favor Green. He is minus 175. Iaquinta plus 155 as the underdog. Uh, Keith, you said something off camera between segments here that I kind of stopped you and wanted to have this conversation on camera because, uh, you know, you said that yeah, you weren't that excited for this fight. And again, considering the stakes, that these are two guys that, you know, they're borderline contender material, I agree. You know, I'm, I'm more excited for this than the second fight out the gate on a fight night card. But for two guys that, you know, are probably at least in that 15 through 20 range, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm less excited than I should be. And tell me if you agree, but the reason for me, there are two reasons for me. One, I've had my heart broken too many times by Bobby Green. You know, every time I think he's turning a corner and leaving the scream at the TV team, he just fights another like weirdly passive fight or just loses rounds like, you know, kind of showboating and 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 dancing and thinks that he's winning the match just because he's making the other guy miss. We all know that story. And then in Ayakinta's case, just because I know that Ayakinta's only going to fight when it's convenient for him. And on the one hand, I am extremely happy for him. The I mean, the, the UFC's relationship with its fighters from its biggest superstars down to the guys who signed 12 and 12 deals out of the contender series is, I mean, it's a bit exploitative and, you know, they, they openly admit that they pay them low to keep them hungry. They keep them begging for bonuses. And Ayakinta is a guy who's just kind of moved himself away from that, went and got his real estate license and has a career, still trains. You know, he's still a Sarah Longo guy, but he fights when it's convenient for him. UFC's coming to Madison Square Garden. Sounds like fun. I'll get in shape. Uh, that's great for Ayakinta. It's bad for me because I know that even if he beats Green, he won't fight again soon enough to make it matter in terms of contention. Uh, you know, Ayakinta is what? 34. Yeah, he's 34. But in terms of contender upside in terms of chances to make it back to another title shot, he might as well be 54. You know, he, he has effectively removed himself from the competitive ladder of the UFC lightweight division. He's just a guy who's going to show up and fight every once in a while. And that's, that can make for a fun fight, but it definitely dampens my enthusiasm for it. You know, tell me if you have any thoughts uh, about that dynamic and then tell me what you think about the fight. Yeah. The reason why I brought it up is everything I was going to say, uh, you got two guys that have one guy who's been a classic, you know, underachiever, and the other guy just he's got one foot out the door, maybe more than one foot out the door. So yeah, this is a fight. I understand why it's high in the card. Ali Quinter has headlined UFC, so that's why it's higher in the card. But like, if I was picking the order, this would probably be one of the first or second fights from the from the bottom starting the night. Now I Kinto it's really hard. Well, first of all, I just want to bring this up. I'm going to continue to bring this up every single time Ally Quinch has ever brought up. 
Stop with this nonsense that he did well against Habib Nurmagomedov. He did not. He got 50-43 to one of the scorecards. It was extremely dominant victory for Habib. <laughs> Stop. That, that's, that narrative is insane. Anyways, back to my point about Ayakunta. It's so hard to grasp who he is considering he hasn't fought in two years. We've seen the past he's well-rounded, but I feel like his hand speed has really dropped. Not that he was ever like a super fast guy. I feel like his hand speed has, has slowed down. He wants to fight in the pocket. He wants to dart in the pocket. He really wings his shots, loves his overhand right. Though for a guy he throws a lot of power shots, I don't think he's a big cracker. Like he, I don't even think he has plus power. I think he has average power at best in the division. Uh, he stands heavy on his front foot, which you think would generate power. But it really just leaves him open to attacks. Like his last fight, Dan Hooker battered his legs and dropped him with leg kicks. Uh, he is a wrestler. Like he has, so when I said he's well-rounded, he can wrestle. He likes like snap singles, sweep singles. That's that's kind of his forte. But I think his wrestling's overrated too. Uh, I mean, his last fight, he was out-wrestled by Dan Hooker. And this is my biggest thing when it comes to a guy. You talk about like we don't know how motivated it is. There's positions in MMA where it gets hard. Is he willing to dig deep in those positions that are that suck? Because guys, this is their whole life. This is their livelihood. This is beyond the money. It's it's the being the best in the world. It's being beating this guy. It's whatever. Does Al Quinta still have that in him? He very well might have, but I don't know. I don't like that. I don't even asking that question. Then move over to Bobby Green. You talked about uh, him cruising at times. It was it was in my notes that that if you're not hitting me, I'm winning. <laughs> very Jorge <laughs> Masvidal. Very uh, he's he's very delusional sometimes. He fights out of both stances. He fights out of both stances a lot. He keeps his hands low, kind of throws from his hips, but it kind of works for him because they they land from weird angles. He's got good head movement. He rolls with his punches so he doesn't get hit clean, very similar to what we just talked about with Chris Curtis. He's got a fasting and jab. He can strike back up. There's a lot of physical things that Bobby Green, he's got a lot of skills. Um, If you're getting close to him, he looks for elbows. He likes to, like, frame and and land elbows. But as you mentioned, he fights down to his competition. Like, this fight is going to be close. Ally Quinta could be completely toast be nowhere near the UFC level, and it's still going to be close because that's just what Bobby Green does. Like, I don't know if he knows he can smoke a guy. Uh, so, I, oh, I didn't talk about his wrestling. He, he's He's got a – it's probably the strength of his game is his wrestling defense. He's more of a sprawl and brawl guy, even though he has a wrestling background. Uh, you hardly ever see him go for takedowns. So, as far as prediction goes, I have no confidence in this fight. But – I mean, one guy's doing real estate. One guy's doing podcasting. The other guy's been very active. Like, he's been active in, over the last two years. So because of that, I'm going to say green. I'm going to take it in a very Bobby Green fashion, so it's going to be very, very close. I I see him stopping some of Ally Quintus' shots. I see him landing the better exchange on the feet. Give me Bobby Green by split decision because it's Bobby Green. <laughs> I agree with you 100% on this one. He fights down to his, uh, Green fights down to his opposition, but also fights up to his opposition. I mean, you and I both are super high on Raphael Fiziev as a striker, and Green gave him all he could handle for three Yeah, rounds. that's a really good point. That's a really, really good point. Like, but I'm not even going to say <laughs> and then Clay it's Glia. the Bobby Green that fought Fiziev. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's like, how does that be? It's it's very Jordan Williams. He knocks out Gregor Rodriguez, then loses to Mickey Gall. I don't know. Okay, carry in on. December, in December, it will be eight years since Bobby Green's only knockout win in the octagon. It was against James Krause in 2013. Like, his, except for getting knocked out by Poirier, all the rest of his UFC fights have gone to the judges. And in fairness, all, that like Krause knockout aged well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, if Al falls out of this fight, you don't think Krause is going to want that back this weekend? Yeah, like, <laughs> Krause is Does is Krause have any fighters on the card? He's just going to show up so. way in. Yeah, you just... <laughs> uh, but I'm I'm with you. I'm not even going to say if the same Bobby Green that fought Rafael Fiziev walked into because he won't. It's going to be the Bobby Green that fights Al Ankita that walks in, and it's going to be closer than it probably needs to be. Uh, but I still do favor uh, Green to get it done. He's been busier against better fighters, and win or lose has actually been uh, very very competitive. I can't trust Ankita coming in off of two years off a two fight losing streak to, you know, to acquit himself well. So give me green by decision as well. The top prelim at UFC 268 is a middleweight matchup between the debuting Alex Pereira and Andreas Michaelidis. Pereira, the 34-year-old Brazilian, is 3-1 and one in his professional mixed martial arts career. He's only fought one time in the last five years, and that's a first-round knockout of Thomas Powell at LFA 95 last November. However, that's not why Alex Pereira is in the UFC. That's not why you care about this fight. Alex Pereira is in the UFC because he is a former glory kickboxing champion who is 2-0 against Israel Adesanya in kickboxing and in their last fight in 2017 became the only man to knock out Israel Adesanya in any combat sport. More on that in a minute. He's taking on Michalidis. The 33-year-old Greek fighter is 13-4 and four overall. He's 1-1 one and one, uh, in the UFC. He dropped his debut to Modestas Bukowskis. I believe that was at light heavyweight. Uh, got a doctor stoppage TKO at the end of the first round. Came back from that and beat the extremely dangerous KB Buller in May at UFC on ESPN Rays versus Prohaska to even up his uh, tally in the octagon. Uh, Pereira, despite the, you know, despite the debut, despite the disparity in MMA experience, is a strong favorite here. He's minus 250. Mikhailidis is plus 210. Okay, so back to Pereira. You, if, if you're not, if you don't follow kickboxing closely, you've heard it already, or you will hear it ad nauseum for the rest of this week. He's the only guy ever to knock out Israel Adesanya. And for what it's worth, it wasn't a fluke smoke and mirrors thing. Uh, they fought twice. Pereira beat him in 2016 uh, in the decision. In the rematch in 2017, he knocked him stiff. Like, toes pointed. Adesanya didn't know where he was with a brutal left hook. So, Pereira is in, uh, in the UFC. Uh, finally kind of decided to go all in on MMA at the age of uh, 33. He is now 34. Uh, he's got a golden ticket, basically. The UFC will make a fight between him and Israel Adesanya as soon as they can possibly justify it, that it's not a complete laugher. And I'm not even saying that he deserves, like, when he deserves a fight. I'm just saying when he doesn't not deserve the fight so hard that people just boycott the event. 
you know, if they can even make a Dan Henderson versus Michael Bisping two level of plausible matchup out of it, they they will because they need something they can they can sell here. Uh, Adesanya is getting close to cleaning out his division. So if Pereira knocks out Mikhailidis here, I'm my guess would be if he can win his first three fights in the UFC, they will fast track him to a, a title shot and they will curate those fights pretty. They'll, they'll, they'll curate them pretty carefully, starting with this one. Uh, this fight is built for Alex Pereira to uh, to shine and get a highlight reel finish. I mean, Pereira is not Israel Adesanya. They're both really tall, long, rangy middleweights. Pereira is 6'3 or 6'4, just like Adesanya is. But where Adesanya is this fluid athlete who's kind of beautiful to watch, you know, Pereira is not. Uh, he is but he is a super, super hard hitter. Uh, just crushing power in all of his strikes. Uh, his kicks are brutal, but uh, his his punches are probably even worse. And Mikhailidis, he's a guy who actually, he can wrestle and he can be a grinder, but he wants to brawl. And all of his uh, professional MMA losses have been by knockout. And even in his wins, he gets hit a lot. He's, he's literally just tailor-made for Pereira to burst onto the scene here in one of the biggest pay-per-views of the year. And watch for if Pereira lives up to expectations and knocks him out for the UFC immediately to go with the narrative of he has unfinished business with the champ. They have a score to settle. Watch for Adesanya to jump willingly into this. I mean, Adesanya loves trash talk. Like, you don't think he'd love to get this back on his own territory? And for the record... I, I think Adesanya would 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 and will obliterate Pereira if, if they fight again in, in MMA. Like they're both different fighters than they were five years ago, but Adesanya is leagues different. But doesn't matter how that fight turns out as long as they can make it and they can sell it. The selling job of that starts here. Uh look for Alex Pereira to at least thus far live up to expectations. Give me first round highlight reel knockout. Smelling salts, stretcher, uh, you know, knock Andreas Mikhailidis back halfway across the Atlantic. Yeah, and, and the smelling salts is not even out of the realm of possibility. You look at his last fight, he hit the, his opponent with a short left hook and his opponent was face planted out for a while. So I, I get where you're going with this. Yeah, so... You kind of covered everything you need to. I mean, Alex Perry is a fantastic striker. I mean, you talked about being Adesanya over here, that he's a glory kickboxing. He was a multi-weight glory kickboxing. He's, he won, you know, he beat Adesanya and knocked him out. The thing is, you talked about him having the fast track because he beat Israel Adesanya. He's also 34. So, like, if the you also want to fast track him but have him not lose because you don't want to well, have him. Yeah. Yeah, they, to they need to fast track him. Yeah, you don't have to lose instead of reset because he's at the age you kind of really can't reset. He is exactly what you expect from a high class striker. He's technically sound. He's a very long and rangy. He's got tons of speed, tons of accuracy, tons of power. As I mentioned, his left hook was one of the sharpest things I've seen in MMA recently. He just stalks his prey. Uh, he's he's not as elusive he's not uh, as Israel Adesanya he's not a uh, not a big movement guy he's more of a stalking praying guy 
powerful kicks. And if you that's if you stand on the outside, if you get on in the inside of them, so which I think what Michaelis would want to do, you want to be on his hips because you don't want to be in the position where it's upper body and he's clinching you because he's got really good. I love the way he just torques his opponents. He like springboards his opponents into his his knees in the clinch. Obviously, I'm worried about his ground game. It's a big question mark. I love that he's training with new UFC light heavyweight champion Glover Teixeira. Like that's if you want to learn ground game. Who better than one of the most underrated grapplers of all time? But way back in 2015, when he has one loss in MMA, it was from a submission loss on the ground. So, yeah, a long time ago, but it's still a question mark. Now, Mikalidis, he's he's trained with MMA Masters. That's Kobe Covington's team. So he's uh, this is a big weekend for them. He's a poor athlete. He's very lumbering, thudding kind of guy. Though he hits hard. He throws a lot of kicks, calf kicks. You mentioned he will look for takedowns, but his takedowns are kind of ugly. They're, that's what Brandy means. I see more of a grappler. Like he's done probably more jujitsu than than rest, wrestling. He and I've seen him on a regional scene. He's been taken now by lower level fighters. He's also gassed out on the regional scene, and I'm worried about his chin. Is I think every one of his losses have come by knockout. So that's that. that and now he's going against the best grab, uh, best striker he's ever faced. So as far as prediction goes, don't be surprised if Mikulis takes Pereira down and ruins all the UFC plans and submits him in the first round. Like, that's not out of the realm of possibility. I mean, we just saw Clarissa Shields, the best female box in the world, lose by takedown and rinse and repeat. I mean, it is two different sports for a reason. My issue is Mikulis had a competitive match against KB Buehler. Like, he won, but it was competitive. So I'm going to go with the upside. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to say Pereira uses a little bit of movement. As he unloads on him with some big shots in the first round, he finds the kill switch in the first round. And I say he knocks out Mikalitas the very first round. And same thing you said, the hype train be going crazy. Yep. Uh, estimated time until the first tweet from Adesanya is five minutes after that knockout. Yeah, I think I think he might already have. Like, it's like in the drafts. He's got like right. some funny meme with it or something some yeah. a- anime thing with it oh no completely completely on board with that the ufc 268 main card starts off with a bantamweight matchup between frankie edgar and marlon vera edgar the 40 year old new jersey native former ufc lightweight champion former ufc featherweight uh title challenger is 24 9 and 1 over the course of his storied career. He is 18 9 and 1 since joining the UFC all the way back in I believe 2007. Uh he has he has lost 3 of his last 4, though in fairness to him all four of those fights have been against top 10 if not top 5 fighters uh across two tough weight divisions. He lost his most recent outing by highlight reel flying knee knockout to Corey Sandhagen back in February. Uh, before that, he took a split decision over Pedro Munoz last August. Prior to that, he lost back-to-back fights to Chan Sung Jung and Max Holloway, both of those in the second half of 2019. He'll be taking on Vera, the 28-year-old Ecuadorian by way of California, is 17-7-1 overall. He is 11-6 since joining the UFC as by far the most prominent and accomplished fighter to come out of the first season of Tough Latin America. He uh, won his last outing 
taking a unanimous decision over Davy Grant at UFC on ESPN Korean Zombie versus Ige back in June. That turned things around for him after his uh, unanimous decision lost to Jose Aldo back last December. Uh, this one fairly close on the on the books, but Vera is the minus 175 favorite. Edgar plus 150 or plus 155 as the underdog. Keith, uh, sounds like your interest in Frankie Edgar's fights is starting to wane just a little bit. What does the guy have left at age 40, and is it enough to win this uh, this Saturday? Yeah, apparently he's not quitting anytime soon. He was asked about it at the media day today, and he said he's going to like fight when he's until he's in his deathbed. Um, I think I'm more than just make another Sandhagen fight. <laughs> Very good point. Um, I think I'm more disinterested in the outcome of this fight because one. Look, what's going to happen? Either Frank Ergo wins and we go, yeah, what's next one? He's 40 years old and he's not going to retire. And the other, and, or worse, Marlon Vera starches him and it's, and it's really sad. Like, that's why I'm disinterested. Like, there's not a result that I'm like, oh, that's, that was fun. Uh, Frank Ergo, I, I kind of feel like we kind of know what to expect from him. He's going to have a lot of movement, tight boxing, high output. He's going to dart in and out of range, unload combinations. His, from what we've seen recently, his hands are still pretty fast. He throws a lot of calf kicks. He did struggle with the range of Max Holloway, which could be very effective with a you know longer, rangier striker and Marlon Vera. Like he might struggle with Marlon Vera's range. Uh, Pigeon Munoz beat up his calves. So that's not something like, but he's a very good wrestler. He's got good entries. That's if he's still as explosive as we once, you know, saw him at his age, that could end overnight. But he loves, he sets him up his tacks behind his punches. He loves that, like, knee tap when he's when he's in close. He's relentless to get at the ground. If he misses 10 takedowns, he'll shoot 20 of them. Like, you know, he'll keep getting them. On top, solid top control. But he gives a little space, but he gives that space to land some ground upon and to set up his own submissions. He does have submit, four submission wins, and he has good ground upon. He also has the cardio to go hard. The biggest thing I'm worried about, though, is his durability. Like, is he still durable enough to survive against, I wouldn't say an elite fighter in Marlon Vera, but an upper echelon, like one of the one of the better guys in the division. And because he, he's taken so much damage, I mean, you think about the the wars he had with Gray Maynard, the the knockout for Brian Ortega, which was such a shocking thing that happened at that moment. The Green Zombie, the Corey Sanhagen, like there. Oh, the Ortega so knockout. Yeah, where he was just out. lifted him off the like up in the air. But he does have leg, legendary heart. But I think heart can only take you so much. Your, your body could just break down. So <clears throat> move over to Marlon Vera. Marlon Vera is southpaw. Like I said, long and, and rangy fighter. He's a bit of a slow starter, but once he finds his rhythm and he finds his timing, he really builds. He picks up the output. He's a pressure striker, constantly moving forward, constantly cutting off the cage. I would say decent power. Like he's he's. I, I don't expect him to starch Frank Yeager like Ortega did with one shot. But I'd say, yeah, he could, especially with his kicking game, which is the best part of his game. He has a lot of defensive flaws, though. He's very hittable. He drops his hands. 
those are probably the two biggest things. But the clinch is strong for him. He's got uh, a nice clinch game. He does. He will sneak in a takedown, though I'd be really surprised if he takes down Frank Yeager. And, and he's not really a great offensive wrestler, more of like an opportunistic wrestler where he just kind of catches someone overextended or something. Uh, more of a guy that will like catch a kick and get it down that way or in some kind of scramble end up on top. But he's not a good defensive wrestler. He is a good grappler, though. He's got if he ends up on top, good ground pound. He is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. I think it's a 10th planet jiu-jitsu black belt. Slick back takes. He has a submission threat. He has eight wins in his career by submission. And he can get subs from both top and bottom. So as far as prediction goes, stylistically, to me, this just comes down to how durable is Frank Edgar. Because while Marlon Vera fights at a high pace, no one outworks Frank Edgar. And Frank Eric still holds a big wrestling advantage. I'm going to say that he survives. I'm going to say his chin survives. I'm going to say he gets some takedowns. And I believe Frank Eric is the the, up, is the underdog. I'm going to say Frank Eric gets it done one more time in front of his hometown crowd or somewhat hometown crowd with a mild upset. So give me the former champion one more time to make me be even – I won't be mad on the recap show. Like, I don't want him to lose. I don't want to see him get hurt. It's more of the, I'll be mad because it's going to give him hope. (laughs) Oh. If you're listening to this right now, you don't need me to tell you the X's and O's of Frankie Edgar's game. You've probably seen him fight literally 20 or 25 times. Uh, And if you pay any kind of attention to the UFC, you've probably seen uh, Marlon Vera fight 10 times. You know, he he feels like such a new guy for someone who's coming up on his 20th UFC fight. What I'm going to do is just give you, and I'm not going to keep you here all night, Keith, but just a tiny bit of alternate history because Edgar won the UFC lightweight title in what frankly was a ter- He won a terrible decision over BJ Penn. Like it was a bad judge's decision. It was really, I have no, it wasn't problem a calling. robbery though. It wasn't, a I mean, it wasn't like a robbery of the year, and they were hard rounds. To, they were rounds that the scoring reflected what the judges valued in an MMA fight. Sure. It was controversial scorecard. It, it doesn't get brought up as one of the worst decisions because of the rematch, because he like justified it in the rematch. Well, see, that's the thing. If he loses that fight, the rematch. Maybe maybe he doesn't get to the rematch. Oh, fair enough. Maybe fair enough. maybe he doesn't get robbed himself against Benson Henderson and. Maybe in 2021, he even more than Glover Teixeira is the fan favorite, universally beloved guy who never got over the hump and never got a title in any division. Like, that's, that's like, instead, he is a pretty much universally beloved guy, you know, just a true good guy of the sport. I mean, a guy with coming up on 30 UFC fights, never missed weight across three weight classes, no PEDs, no domestic violence, no public mayhem, no boneheaded statements, no tweets. You know what I mean? Just a good dude. Uh, You know, like I remember like four or five years ago when like there was the brief thing of the ice bucket challenge. Then he did the ice bucket challenge at his house and he had his kids who were way too small to be handling that bucket. And they tried to pour it and they just dropped the full bucket on his head and just like practically knocked him out. (laughs) He's like, ow, (laughs) like just falls out of the camera. Like if you don't love Frankie Edgar, like I don't know what's wrong with you. And this is something I, I think I've said about fighters who are on the decline before, but 
Marlon Vera might be the highest ranked fighter that Frankie Edgar has this clear a path to victory against. Because, you know, Marlon Vera, like, overwhelms with volume, but he's not a one-shot power guy. So if he tags up Edgar, it's not like Edgar's getting hit by Sandhagen or Ortega and just getting flatlined. And uh, Vera's cardio is good, but not super elite. And Vera's defensive wrestling is probably his biggest liability at this point. Those all point to good things for Frankie Edgar. And while I could see Vera just taking a really entertaining scrap over Edgar, and then we finally go, okay, finally, okay, Edgar is now losing to guys who probably aren't even in the top 10, and we can finally close the book on him as a, as a contender, even at Bantamweight. Uh, but I'm with you. i am just got this sneaking suspicion that in what is all but a hometown fight, for you know New Jersey's proudest export, that he gets it done one more time. He's a guy like Teixeira that when we say heart, we're not talking about some intangible. We've watched this guy will himself to victory in fights where his body was like justifiably wanted to give up on him. Even if Vera puts him to some of those moments in this fight, I think he's going to get through it. And yeah, give me Frankie Edgar to win a rousing decision as the slight underdog here. And you're right. That means he'll just sign another six-fight deal with the UFC and fight them all. Maybe at flyweight. The UFC 268 main card powers on with a featherweight matchup between Shane Burgos and Billy Quarantillo. Burgos, the hometown guy, Team Tiger Shulman from New York, is 30 years old. He's 13-3 and three overall. He's 6-3 and three in the UFC is currently on the first losing streak of his career, having dropped back-to-back fights to Josh Emmett last summer and Edson Barboza, who knocked him out in Houston back in May with a one of the strangest highlight reel knockouts I've, I've ever seen, but uh, putting a cap on what had been a wild back-and-forth fight between the two that was everything that a fight between Burgos and Barboza seemed to promise. He'll be taking on Quarantillo, the 32-year-old Florida native, is 16-3 and overall. He's 4-1 and since joining the UFC out of the third season of Dana White's Contender Series. Uh, he's defeated Jacob Kilburn, Spike Carlisle, Kyle Nelson, and most recently Gabriel Benitez, whom he knocked out at uh, UFC on ESPN, Makachev versus Moises back in July. His lone UFC loss was uh, last December a unanimous decision to Gavin Tucker. Quarantillo is the slight underdog here. He's plus 160. Burgos out there around minus 185 or minus 190 as the favorite. Keith, who have you got? And, well, I mean, we got Justin Gaethje and Michael Chandler fighting up the card, but on any other night, would this be one of the most obvious shoe-ins for a fight of the night? Yeah, I think so. So I'm going to say this. I think the next four fights would be obvious shoe-ins for a fight of the night. Like the main card is going to be action packed. Uh, after we get past Frank Edgar holding down Marlon Vera for 15 minutes, but uh, yeah, I love this fight. It's going to be a fun scrap. I like both guys, uh, so I hate picking a winner in this. Shane Burgos is just a huge dude for for the weight class. Like he's a guy that I think will eventually have to leave the weight class. Just pedal from the metal right from the get go. He's going to be moving forward, crazy output, fast hands. Busy, busy jab, great pocket boxing. He loves to work the body. He's one of the guys that really builds off of that. I'd say plus power, solid leg kicks, some negatives. He does keep his hands low, 
And I actually think he's, for a guy who keeps his hands low, he kind of leads with his chin, which is really dangerous. And he doesn't have great head movement. Like he he he, he moves, but he's he's not elite head movement. He so he gets hit a lot. He's been taken down in matches too, and he's not much of an offensive wrestler himself. But he does toss up submissions. I can go all the way back to like Kurt Holabar. He's tossing up submissions. And he's taken a lot of damage. I mean, think about the Josh Emmett fight. Think about the Edson Barbosa fight. Kurt uh, Holabar dropped him. But he fights at such an insane pace that his just output is you know, just folds, guys. Now move over to Billy Quarantillo. He's also an action fighter. He's also a pressure striker. He also likes to throw it out of the pocket. Uh, he's he well. Burgos is more of a jabber in. Quintillo is going to throw bombs in. Uh, he's going to be constantly working the whole time. He's going to try to get Burgos backing up, but he can't be pushed back on his back foot because we saw that happen against Gavin Tucker, and Gavin Tucker had success forcing him back. Uh, one thing, he has decent power. I wouldn't say earth shattering. I actually think like the physical tools of, of Burgos, he has the, Burgos has the power advantage. But one thing I think Quarantilla does better than Burgos is he mixes takedowns well with his striking, and he chains wrestles well. He's relentless to get his takedowns. He can be taken down. He doesn't have the best top control. He's willing to like chase a submission. But he is – I think he's a Brazilian black belt. He might be just a brown belt, but he's he is a submission threat. Uh, and he looks for subs instead of scrambling to his feet. That's one thing I don't like. And he's also, even though he's been very successful in the UFC, he's taken a lot of damage. So as far as prediction goes, this is an insane fight. It, I think it should be a pick I think the lines are a little off. I'm going to go with Burgos simply because he's faced the better competition. I think he is the better striker. He's bigger, uh, and he hits much harder. But... If he can't fight off takedown attempts, and I think that's the best avenue for Quintillo, and Quintillo can win this fight, I think he will stuff enough and then make up the difference when it's on the feet. So give me Burgos for decision, but I don't have a lot of confidence in this pick as, as the lines do. I feel a lot of the same stuff uh, you do on this one. I like Burgos a lot. I actually picked him to beat Edson Barboza. And when he lost the first round, then won the second, I was feeling really smart until Barboza hit him with the trank dart that made him just kind of like reach for his neck and go down three seconds later. One of the, probably the nuttiest knockout I've ever seen like in person, but it doesn't change how I feel about Shane Bur- Burgos in general. His, his tools are what they are and his approach is what it is. I always expect him because as you point out, he is a Titanic uh, featherweight like he and Barboza in the cage at weigh-ins at face-offs b- both basically the same size and Barboza is a guy that we couldn't believe he was cutting to featherweight and between his size and the frenetic pace he likes to push I always expect Burgos's gas tank to just completely betray him at some point but it it really hasn't I can't think of a, a fight where his performance has hinged on uh you know on him gassing out because otherwise, I'd feel better about Quarantillo because Quarantillo is a guy who he's he shows a lot of poise and he's he's capable. I, I, I never would recommend the rope-a-dope in MMA, but he's good at taking weathering the storm against his opponent, staying calm, avoiding too much damage, and then taking over. Uh, it's how he was the first guy in the UFC to beat Spike Carlisle and kind of just show the blueprint for, okay, this is what you do against this guy. Just let him gas himself out in the first seven minutes and then, you know, you can make your stuff work against him. 
Chamber of Ghosts is a much taller order than, than Spike Carlisle, obviously. But, you know, that's that's one thing that Quarantilla definitely has going in his favor. Uh, I do like the matchup of his offensive wrestling against Burgos's uh, defensive wrestling. But as you pointed out, did he, it's not like he has lockdown top control when he gets uh, gets down there. And Burgos, once things hit the ground, he is very active. Like he clearly wants very badly to get back up and resume throwing uh, 100 strikes around at you. As much as I, I think the line should be closer and as tempting as it is to take uh, Quarantillo as the, the slight upset pick here, uh, I'm with you. Give me Burgos by decision in what on a normal human fight of nights would probably be a front runner for fight of the nights, but it won't even be on the, the medal stand uh, this time. Third from the top this Saturday at Madison Square Garden is a high stakes lightweight matchup between Justin Gaethje and Michael Chandler. Gaethje, the 32-year-old Arizonan by way of Colorado, is 22-3 overall. He is 5-3 since joining the UFC as the departing World Series of Fighting champ. Uh, he did lose his last time out just a little over a year ago uh, to Khabib Nurmagomedov in what appears to have been Nurmagomedov's farewell fight uh, by second-round triangle choke submission. That was UFC 254 last October. That put the brakes on a four-fight win streak for Gaethje over James Vick, Edson Barboza, Donald Cerrone, and Tony Ferguson. All four of those were KO or TKO finishes. He'll be taking on Chandler. The 35-year-old Missouri native is a former Bellator champion and 22-6 and overall. He is 1-1 one one since joining the UFC last year. He won his debut, knocking out Dan Hooker in the first round at UFC 257, then came back this May at UFC 262, and came tantalizingly, agonizingly close to winning the UFC lightweight belt. But Charles Oliveira recovered the, from the early onslaught, turned things around in the second round, and knocked out Chandler uh, to win the title. Uh, odds on this one, favor Gaethje, he is minus 220. Chandler is plus 175 or plus 180 as uh, the underdog. Man, this is a great fight now in 2021. And there's no point in about the last six years w when this would not have been just an absolutely incredible fight. Uh, in in Gaethje's uh, kind of last run in WSOF, you know, like in... 2016 when Chandler was either he was either champ or he was in one of those like yeah it was before the loss to premise like when he had beaten Patricky Pitbull and Benson Henderson that would have been not only the probably the best fight you could make outside the UFC but maybe the best fight period that had, that could ever have been made outside the UFC after the fall of Pride Fighting Championships it's still a great fight now uh, and it might well be a you know a lightweight title eliminator these guys you know they're they're similar in broad strokes uh it's surprising how much success both of them have had considering how aggressive their approach is you know you expect your your all-time divisional grades especially in a division like lightweight to be a little more uh contained a little more defensively sound a little less aggressive but both these guys even the new toned down gagey is extremely aggressive uh, as is Chandler. Chandler's a, a fast starter. Uh, both of them have a wrestling background and a pretty strong wrestling background at that. 
But in the case of Chandler, you haven't really seen him leverage it in a few years. And in Gaethje's case, we've never really seen it in his professional career. Like he's uh, never really put that to use. Both of them, plenty of power. Uh, Chandler, you know, much more punch oriented. Gaethje punches as well. But of, of course, one of his most underutilized weapons is his leg kicks. The question with both these guys is because of that approach, both of them have to have taken some clean, like bad knockouts in the last few years. Both of them, even in, in their wins, have taken uh, some damage. And I just expect that one of these guys, Chin, will betray him in a wild first round. Earlier this week, just off the cuff, I kind of leaned Chandler. But as I've revisited their fights in the last year or two, I'm running that back. Just if Chandler uh, hurts Gaethje early and swarms all over him and goes for the finish, I think Gaethje will will recover and the the fight will go on. If Gaethje does it to Chandler, I don't think it will. I don't think it will. I, I think he's lost just that little bit off his chin, just that little bit of recoverability. I mean, it's worth mentioning that as recently as this May, if there had been a different ref in there, and I'm not saying that there should have been a stoppage. I'm just saying that it wouldn't have been the worst stoppage of the year if the ref had stepped in and, and stopped Chandler while he was wailing on Bronx, like, you know, sitting at the edge of the fence. But I'm just saying, like, it, he came that close to being the, the UFC lightweight champ. Uh, but when Oliveira turned it around on him, he, he just he didn't have that recoverability. And in Gaethje, we have someone who hits even harder than Oliveira, has at least in terms of the striking, even more of a killer instinct. Uh, yeah, like, I don't think Gaethje is is miles ahead of Chandler, but I think the way they match up, it's just going to it's going to be a first round knockout for Gaethje. It's going to be a wild first round. They're both aggressive starters. But when push comes to shove, Chandler's chin is the one that's going to give out. Yeah, this is a fantastic fight. The first thing I think of is, man, do they hate Michael Chandler? Like, he's been thrown to the absolute wolves. I mean, you start your UFC career. Has anybody had a tougher run in the UFC than Dan Hooker, Charles Oliveira, and Justin Gaethje back-to-back-to-back run? <laughs> uh, and, and that's not me saying I'm picking against him. I'm just saying, like, after he lost to Charles Oliveira, and you were right, he was so close to winning that fight. I mean, how insane would that have been? I mean, Scott Coker was ready to hit oh, the tweet. As, can you can you imagine the tweets that Patricio Pitbull had loaded for oh, that? Oh, I know, I know. Um, <laughs> then AJ McKee after that. But, uh, yeah, I I thought, like, he should took a step down. Like, I don't think they should. Now, obviously, I love this fight, but, I mean, from a promotional sense, I probably gave Chandler a much easier and kind of find this fight six months from now. But as far as who's going to win this fight, I mean, what what is it going to say about these guys? I love both these guys, so we'll start with we'll start with Justin Gaethje. He, the way he slides in the pocket and unloads power shots is such a thing of beauty. Now, I want to I want to break him down differently than I've I break down a lot of guys. He has so many tools, and he seems to showcase one of his tools in, in every fight. Like, he, or it should yeah, it becomes like more apparent in every fight. Like, he he has power in both hands. We see this devastating overhand right. Perfect example, James Vick fight. Then we have this butchering left hook. Perfect example, the Tony Ferguson fight. 
Oh yeah, then he has these arguably the best kicks in MMA. We've seen it really against everybody he faces. But I think the perfect example of that fight would probably be the early going in the Edson Barbosa fight. I've talked about this past. I love his dirty box. I love when he grabs the back of the head and just kind of wings his his right hand, short shots, uppercuts. Very he did that very successful. Donald Cerrone is a good fight is a good example of that. So he's got all these great tools, and now he's working with Trevor Whitman, and he's getting more technically sound with it. We saw a transition in his game against Tony Ferguson, like mid-fight, in one of the best. It was like halftime for him. Like you see, like a a team come out at halftime, and they're completely different. That's what happened with with Justin Gaethje when Trevor Whitman said, "Hey, hold back! Don't throw everything 100%. Throw it at 70, 80, whatever he said." And now we see him doing that. And it's funny because instead of whipping everything and trying to get the knockout, when you're just touching and and you're scoring points and you're setting up, you actually set up your power shots with these small touching things. And then you generate even more power because when you throw a strike, everything's lined up. Your legs are lined up. Now, imagine if – so Trevor Whitman has already done this magic with him in just a short time. He's, oh, I know not a short time, but they, he made this adjustment. I know he's been working for a long time, but – Imagine if he starts cleaning up some of his defensive holes. Like, imagine if that happened. Imagine if he stopped backing straight up. Imagine if he stopped dropping his hands. Imagine if he didn't get rocked in every single fight because he's so hittable. And how about this? Imagine if he uses all American wrestling. Like we always hear it, and I know they on the countdown show they tried stressing it, but I will keep saying this until I start seeing him use it. That his wrestling is grossly overrated. One, yeah, he took seventh his senior year. Okay, he he wasn't. He wasn't Josh Koscheck winning it. He wasn't Ben Askren, you know, winning Hodge trophies. So I think his wrestling's a little gross over it. But he but besides that, obviously if you're an all American, you got a good enough wrestling that you can out wrestle some people in the UFC. But he never uses it. It's like like him being an all American wrestler is like it's like him throwing out perfect attendance in third grade. Like it has no relevance on the fight. Like it's about the same thing. Because yeah, you you might have won some Wrestling tournaments back in the day, but you don't use it. Now, Michael Chandler. Michael Chandler is so freaking explosive. Like, that's the first thing that stands out. Michael Chandler's been one of my favorite fighters since the very first Eddie Alvarez fight. I'll go to my grave saying that. I'll go to my grave saying Eddie Alvarez versus Michael Chandler, their rivalry is as good as any rivalry ever. Their first two fights are as good as any fight ever. Michael Chandler versus Eddie Alvarez won, happened the same night as Dan Henderson Shogun won. And a lot of people call Dan Henderson Shogun won the best fight ever. And I say it all the time. It wasn't even the best fight that night. Chandler and, and Alvarez better. It might be my favorite fight ever. Anyways. Well, actually, the girl fight in the next fight might be my best fight ever. But back to this one. Uh, he's got a very boxing style. Heavy, he, uh, high guard, heavy right hand. Uh, keeps his hand, uh, back to the high guard, he keeps his hands glued to his face. And he just uses it where he can step in. Dart in and out of range so well and land big power shots. They're they're tight. He works the body well, and that becomes kind of becomes the foundation of all the power shots. Like he'll go down, left hook the body, hurt his opponents, and then finally he's just not working up. Uh, he has KO power in both of his hands. He's someone who really keeps his, his base. We were just talking about Justin Gaethje, how he kind of keeping his footwork to get more technically sound. It's kind of been the thing with Michael Chandler 
a lot. Now his offense is really good, but he has some defensive struggles, which is which is why this fight could be so freaking good because they both do. Uh, he eats a lot of big shots, uh, and that's because he doesn't reach. He's not quick to rechamber his shots. We've seen it against. He like overextend trying to land a shot, or I shouldn't say overextend, but throw a shot and not get back in the right position, and then someone like Pipple puts him out. He also doesn't check leg kicks. Go all the way back to the first fight against Brett Primus, where Brett Primus stopped him with calf kicks. But the difference between Chandler and Gaethje, and this is why I've really thought about taking Michael Chandler, is that he's a great wrestler and he does use it. He's an elite wrestler. He gets good entries. He's super strong. Go back to like the Benson Henderson fight where he's super. I know they fought twice, but the one where he suplexed Benson Henderson. Just to do someone like that at that time, and that was a better win than it is. You know, that Benson has an eight, win hasn't aged well, but when that happened, it was better than it is now. Uh, he has really strong ground control. I think where like he outgrappled guys like Primus and and Yamaguchi. That's good accomplishments. The one thing I don't like about him is that his output tends to fade, but he has gone twenty five minutes. <laughs> this fight ain't going fifteen minutes. Why? Why it wasn't an automatic twenty five? minute fight like they've been doing recently i don't know but the ufc might be like well i fill out the extra paperwork this fight ain't going that long anyways uh so as far as prediction goes this fight is so good i mean i expect it to be a slugfest and it, it hasn't very when two guys where one one person probably shouldn't slug like michael Chandler probably shouldn't slug he'd probably be better if he if he went for takedowns i just think when you get this fight and it's been marketed as the two sluggers, who's going to back down? I don't think Michael Chandler's going to back down. The problem is, I feel the same way you do. I don't trust his chin. Justin Gaethje's been hurt, but he always finds a way to recover. That's not the case with Michael Chandler. I think about Pitbull put him out with one shot, Charles Oliveira put him out. So I'm going to say Gaethje because of his power, and I'm going to go with you. I think it's going to be a wild. I think we have the same exact prediction exactly. I think we're going to have a fun treat. Both guys rock him, sock him, landing shots, but Gaethje finally finishes him with a big shot. So give me Justin Gaethje. I'm going to say he can buy first round knockout. There you go. Two picks for Justin Gaethje to win a wild one uh, in the feature fight of UFC 268. The co-main event of UFC 268, the first of two title fight rematches on the card, the second of three uh, assignments for Trevor Whitman to close out the evening, features Thug Rose Namajunas defending her strawweight title against Wei Li Zhang. Namajunas, the 29-year-old uh, Wisconsin native by way of Colorado, is 10 and 4. Overall, she is 8-3 and three since joining the UFC out of the 20th season of The Ultimate Fighter. She is, of course, the former uh, strawweight champ. She is the new strawweight champ. She fought most recently in April, knocking out Zhang with a head kick in the first round of their matchup at UFC 261 to take back her title. She'll be taking on Zhang. The 33-year-old Chinese fighter is 21-2 and two overall. She is five and one in the UFC and uh, lost to Namajunas her last time out, snapping a 21 fight win streak. She lost her first fight. She lost her last fight and had a monstrous uh, run of wins in between. Her UFC wins in particular have been Danielle Taylor, Jessica Aguilar, Tisha Torres, Jessica Andrade, whom she defeated to win the title, 
And uh, Joanna Janjacek in one of the greatest fights of all time last March at UFC 248. Uh, while opinions can differ on whether this immediate title rematch was called for or deserved, on the odds at least, uh, it is appropriate, as Zhang is actually the slight favorite as of the time of this taping. She is minus 115. Nami Yunus not quite out there at even money, but she is minus 105 uh, as the... Or, sorry, sorry, Nami Yunus is, is the, the... Yeah, the very, very slight underdog. Uh, Keith... Uh, how do you feel about this one? I mean, we've talked, and everyone in the media has talked ad nauseum. I mean, you you either love that this fight is happening or you don't love that it's happening. But how do you feel the fight goes? Well, I'll say this: I don't I don't agree with the immediate rematch. I think somebody else should have got the shot. Who I don't know, call us the sponsor or somebody. That said, from an exit and O sense, from an entertainment sense, like how could you not love this fight? I mean, we loved this fight the first time. That it was going to go down. I didn't go down as expected, but like I was extremely intrigued. Side note: You mentioned Trevor Whitman is cornering three his his three stars all in the same night. If they go three and zero, it's pretty much a lock. He's coach of the year, right? Just on this if, one event. If right? they go anything other than zero and three, I think he still gets my call for coach of the year. Okay. It's just he's an unbelievable. He is. He is unbelievable year. But if yeah. he goes three, if they go three and zero, forget it. Like don't even. Yeah. Don't even bother voting. Uh, it's so funny because this is the fight that's kind of getting overshadowed because the main event, the guys trash talk, the co- uh, the third from the top is, you know, such a classic banger. We know someone's getting knocked out. But this one, I, I almost feel guilty that I'm not more excited for it because when I think about it, I'm like, holy crap, these are the two best girls in the world. And two, sorry, I don't mean to say home girls, two best female fighters in the world in the division going at it in a technically sound fight, and it's it's going to be fantastic. Rose Namajunas is, is so vast. We talk about Trevor Whitman and, and his three stars, and he's done an amazing time, amazing job with Justin Gaethje. In the little time he's had with Kamara Usman, we've seen tremendous. But that said, what he's done with Rose Namunas probably tops them all. Because she's probably more technical, definitely more technical than Justin Gaethje, probably more technically sound than than Kamara Usman. And that's saying a lot, who we're saying is the most powerful, pound best fighter in the world, according to the Sherdog rankings. And why I say this, she has no tells. Everything's quick, short, no loading up, no shoulder, like no twisting, nothing. Everything's just perfect. Like she doesn't, she doesn't, uh, Give any tells like that what she's gonna do. Great footwork, great lateral movement, good head movement. She slides out of range so well. She's a great range striker. One of the best jabs in MMA, regardless of gender. She's one of the few fighters that can land effectively while backing up, while circling away, while trying to get away. Good kicks, wicked high, you know, wicked quick high kick. I mean, look at the last fight. Uh and one thing we discussed a week ago, and you said this, and I think it was really, I, I was saying, is Marina Rodriguez the hardest hitter in the division? You said, no, I think Rose Namunas. And I'm like, yeah, no, she is. It's just because of her her, her frame. She doesn't, You wouldn't think of her as the big cracker in the division, but she really is. I mean, she touches people, they get hurt. She's also extremely intelligent. Um, I know she gets some slack by not letting go of the Kimura with Jessica Andrade, but that's more of a fluke thing than like an intelligence thing. 
what I like about her is her understanding situations, like the way she set up a high kick against Weili Zhang, the way that she can, if you over pursue her, she'll sneak in the takedown and take you down. I, I always think about the Joanna Janjacek. I had a 2-2 going into the first round. I think most people did. It was a close fight. I think there was maybe about a minute, 45 seconds left, whatever it was. The round was really close. We didn't see any grappling, and then perfectly timed takedown to win the fight. Probably won her, kept the title. Just little things like that. And she's an absolute wizard on the ground. She so flexible. She moves so well, both from on top and on bottom. She advances positions, and then she's a real submission threat. She can end the fight. Now, move on to Whaley. Whaley, well, she just recently went to fight Ready MMA, which I'm sure, well, I know, I don't know if she's working with Coach Eric Barazine, but if 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 he if she is and he wins, uh, I'm sure he'll want to be, co- be coach of the year. But I, I like her moving to fight Ready. Because, you know, just way better training partners. It's one of the best gyms. I know she's been working with Henry Cejudo right there alone is is an amazing accomplishment. So she is well-rounded. She's very light on the feet. She moves very well. She's a high-volume striker. She's She wants to get in the pocket. Like, that's what she wants to get. She wants to get out, out of the long range of rows and get in the inside. And she's just very physically strong for the weight class. I mean, you look at her, she's built really well. And she knocked out Jessica Andrade with one punch. She brutalized. I mean, look what she did. She rearranged Yohanna Andrzejczyk's face where you you couldn't even recognize her. She mixes in kicks well. She'll throw out those stupid, like, spinning attacks. I'll just throw that out there. But some negatives. She has some defensive holes, though. She 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 lacks head movement. She She's willing to eat one to, to you know, land one in – most people, she has the punching power. I don't know if she will against Rose Namias because because Whaley can crack too. I also don't think she gets enough credit for her ground game. I said this last time we broke it down. A lot of trips in the clinch. She's good at winning scrambles. She's good at controlling on top. I mean, she murdered Jessica Aguilar in their fight on the ground. Though she has been taken out. She was taken down by a smaller Tisha Torres, which is not a good sign for someone who's so much physically bigger than her. So prediction goes, I have no confidence in it. Like, I know, like, I sound like a broken record because it's so evenly matched. I'm just, I never do this. I never pick by my gut. And I'm just going to go with, a, like, I'm going to leave the X's and O's because both these girls are so technically sound. They're so, I just really like, I'm a fan of both their skills. I'm going to go with Nama Yunus just from a straight gut call. I think she's the more well-rounded fighter. I expect this to be a back-and-forth fight. I just think Dominators would do the little things. Throwing more kicks to the body, having a little bit more higher volume, sneaking in takedowns, initiating the clinch, initiating the attacks in the clinch. Just the little things that will help her win rounds. But I think this is going to be an absolute war. This might be – like everyone keep picking Chandler and Gaethje as the fight of the night pick. Don't sleep on this one either. But give me another unit, I'll give her by a unanimous decision. I, I like that, you know, after the, the breakdown, you just kind of went with, I'm, you know, I've got to go by my gut here. I definitely feel that here. The interesting thing about Nami Yunus is just how she continues to evolve between each fight. Because she's so accomplished, because, I mean, she's at least in the team photo for the most accomplished strawweight of, of all time. It's easy to remember, like that she's actually a little on the green side. I mean, she won the UFC title in her 10th fight. Yeah. 
uh, <clears throat> you know, she this is only her 15th fight now. She's not even 30 yet. Uh, you're absolutely right in that even before she got with uh, Trevor Whitman, but certainly on an accelerated scale since then, she's unveiled new weapons. She was absolutely a grappling specialist when she debuted in MMA. I mean, the where she popped up on everyone's radar was hitting that flying arm bar on, on Katina Lowe in like her second or third fight. Uh, she's, she doesn't look that physically different, but she's developed power. And I think she's just developed power one by being 29 instead of 22. Now, like we constantly talk about how people kind of grow into their power in their mid to late twenties, uh, but also just because her techniques become cleaner and, when you you know you're sitting on your punches and you're rotating your hips properly, you hit harder, even though your muscles aren't any bigger. Uh, <clears throat> I think she and and Zhang, uh, you know, and Marina Marina Rodriguez, who you talked about, you know, they might be the the three hardest uh, hitters in the division. But Zhang hits hard because she is big and strong and swings hard with good technique. Uh, Nama Yunus hits hard without loading up. And like you said, she has no tells. So her hard strike is further compounded by being the strike that you don't see coming. I mean, that's that's certainly the head kick. Uh, it's, it's the, like, just the blistering uh, combinations that she took down uh, Juwani Janjacek with in their first fight. I... I think the the further we get from it, the more her first loss to Jessica Andrade is going to seem not like a fluke because that was like the third time in that fight that uh, Nami Yunus had defended a takedown with kind of that same Kimura grip. So the outcome of that fight was not a fluke. But if she and Andrade fought 10 times, I, I don't think that happens more than once or twice. I, I you know, she I, I thought she outclassed Andrade in their rematch. And I in this fight i don't it's not going to look exactly like the first zhang fights but i think she's gonna make it look easier like my gut says she's gonna make it look easier than my head thinks i just i don't think you want to take on a trevor whitman student in a rematch i don't think she even got to show everything she had for Li zhang in that first fight i, I think she's gonna kind of outclass zhang on the feet zhang will be over swinging at air Nami Yunus will be coming back with bombs. If she wants to take it to the ground, I think she'll be able to take Zhang down where Zhang might struggle to get Nami Yunus down, especially if Nami Yunus knows she needs to get it down, like if she's been ding her, digging her up on the feet. Uh, give me Nami Yunus by uh, second round TKO. And and I, I feel strongly ab about this one. Like, I'm not a lock of the night type guy, but for a fight that's this close on the odds, I, I feel more strongly about this than any other fight on the card. Wow. Let me ask you this real quick. This will be a little preview for the recap. Say we both are correct. And Nami Yunus wins. Would this win surpass, make her surpass Yuana as the greatest in the division? She won't have as many title defenses, but... but she'll, have two, she'll have two head-to-head -head wins in their respective primes. And then two wins over Whaley. She'd have a win over Jessica Andrade. I mean, that's hard to argue against. It, it is hard to argue against. And she'll have time to expand on that because... All of a sudden, Carla Esparza, one of the first people to beat her, is, I mean, she's going to get a chance to get even with her real soon, just yeah. like she did with Tisha Torres. Yep. Like, she's going to be one of those people that's like George St. Pierre that has, like, no unavenged losses. Yeah. You know? So we'll save that for the recap if it does happen. 
Yeah. And if it doesn't happen, then you know what? We could do worse than have a trilogy fight. Yeah, that's like, true. I, I don't I don't like this rematch, but if Zhang wins, I like I like there being a trilogy fight. With that, we come to the main event of UFC 268, a scheduled five rounds for the UFC undisputed welterweight title between defending champ Kamaru Usman and the challenger Colby Covington. Usman, the 34-year-old Nigerian by way of Nebraska, by way of Florida, is 19-1 in his mixed martial arts career. He is 14-0 since joining the UFC out of the 21st season of The Ultimate Fighter. Uh, he is your reigning and four-time defending uh, UFC welterweight champ. He won the title uh, by defeating Tyrone Woodley back at UFC 250, or sorry, 235 in March of 2019. Since then, he has defended against Covington, Jorge Masvidal, Gilbert Burns, and then most recently this past April, a rematch with Masvidal, which he won in uh, emphatic fashion, knocking the Floridian out in the second round at UFC 261. Covington, the 33-year-old Oregonian by way of Florida, is 16-2 overall. He is 14-2 in the UFC. Uh, he lost uh, to Usman in his first attempt to win the belt back at UFC 245 in December of 2019. Since then, he has fought once, last September, uh, taking a dominant four and a half rounds from uh, future celebrity boxer Tyron Woodley before stopping him with a TKO due to injury in the middle of the fifth round. But again, for the record, that fight had been a complete steamrolling even up to uh, the, the injury TKO. Odds on this one, favor Usman to get the job once again. He is minus 290, Covington available at plus 240 to 250 as, as the underdog. Uh, you said off the top, but just for anybody who is skipping straight to this fight or skipping to the last couple fights on the card, uh, I would like to reiterate that it is easy to get lost in the narrative like because Covington is such a polarizing figure, because that their first fight was seen as a culture clash as well as a mixed martial arts title fight, to think of that as nothing but Usman breaking Covington's jaw. And that could not be further from the truth. Up until that fight, that had been easily Usman's toughest title defense and quite possibly the closest and hardest fight of his UFC run overall. Uh, Covington gave Usman everything he could handle until fairly shortly before everything started to, to roll downhill. Uh, Covington is is a guy who, uh, for his strengths, mirror a lot of Usman's, and he was able to kind of match him blow for blow, wrestling for wrestling, cardio and pace. Like, if anything, you know, like Colby has. Uh, weaponized cardio and, and pace even more so than Usman. Uh, <clears throat> and yeah, it was a sensational fight. And, you know, it ended in, I'm sure, a very satisfying manner for Co Covington's detractors. But they're, they're here back to do it again. So the only questions are, how different are these two guys since the first time they fought? That's, that's the real question. Uh, you know, they're 34 and 33 respectively, so it's not like they're five years apart in age where where the time is going to be that much crueler to one guy than the other. 
it's harder to draw uh, conclusions with Covington because he's only fought once since then, and he just absolutely had his way with Tyron Woodley. You know, that was a rivalry fight that the UFC cashed in about three years too late. Woodley was shot, had nothing for Covington, um, and Covington just completely destroyed him, like whipped him on the feet, took him down at will, uh, and just mauled him. Usman, it's a very, it's a different story. Again, going uh, t- to work with Trevor Whitman. We've talked about in his last couple of fights. He's gone from a guy who was a fairly like a fairly standard grindy wrestler who had good power and hand speed on the feet, but a, a pretty basic tool set to a guy who had a great jab to a guy whose jab is now not just a tool but a weapon. Like his his jab hurts you. It splits your skin. It if you're Gilbert Burns, it knocks you down. Like the the, the whole thing, the whole finishing sequence started with a jab that put Burns on his ass. Uh, Usman's kicks are deadly, and he throws them without fear because he's not you know, he's not afraid of being taken down. Uh, I feel as though Kamaru Usman has has developed new tools and kept his existing tools sharper by being so much busier since uh, their last fight. I mean, has Usman fought three times? Yeah, Usman's fought three times since then, while Covington's just fought the ones. Uh, he's been with Whitman for at least two of those. I know, you know, like for the Burns fight, he was definitely uh, away from from Sanford MMA. I expect, I expect this to be a very competitive fight, at least for a while. You know, Covington, regardless of how you feel about his, like, his shtick, his persona is an incredible fighter. Um, he is an incredibly tough fighter. He's a physically gifted fighter. Uh, but I think Usman's going to start rolling down hell on him earlier this time. Uh, I think he's going to get the better of the striking where before, like for the first two rounds or so, I don't know what the strike numbers are, but it felt as though Covington was outlanding him with this high volume, uh, relatively low power thing, just, you know, touching him up, keeping him from getting comfortable. I don't think that's going to be available to Covington this time. And when Covington goes for his takedowns, I don't know if he's going to have the same kind of success this time. Uh, give me Kamaru Usman by, you know, he only has one career submission, even though, I mean, he's had plenty of opportunities where he could have had one, but just ended up, you know, uh, yeah, give me give me Kamara Usman by by third round finish. It could be a TKO on the ground. It could be a mercy kill type of submission. But I think he's going to figure Covington out early, start hurting him on the feet. But it's only going to go to the ground when Usman wants it wants it there and it's time for the kill. And I'm going to say that's round three. Wow. So let me ask you a couple of questions before I break down the fighters and give my prediction. Who do you think has more pressure on them heading in, Kamara Usman or Kobe Covington? <clears throat> And I'll tell you why I'm asking the question. So I feel Usman has a lot of pressure on him because imagine if he loses, but he's got to listen to Kobe. <laughs> that that pressure on. But Kobe has pressure on him now. What if he drops to 0-2 against – I mean, he's kind of in that dark hole of you're 0-2 against the champion. What do you do? So that's why I asked the question. Who do you think has more what, pressure? <clears throat> I, I think they both have – pressure but for that reason i think there's more pressure on covington because if he loses this fight the the road back to another shot is going to be a long 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 road for as long as usman holds the belt and Usman could hold this belt for another three years 
They're almost yeah. the same age. Like Usman could end up holding the belt for their entire primes, and Colby just kind of stuck on the outside looking in if he loses in convincing fashion. Mm-hmm. Whereas if Covington beats Usman, we have an immediate trilogy. Yeah. You know, and there's all kinds of pressure on both <laughs> yeah. guys then. Or Leon Edwards. <laughs> yeah. Um, the another thing I want to ask is, well, you you asked this. You said who has improved more since their first fight in Kobe, we don't know if he's improved because he beat up Tyron Woodley, who just lost to a reality TikTok star or whatever. So we don't really know. And I know that was boxing, but the my point is, is Tyron Woodley was done. We know Kamaru Usman has improved because all you got to do is look at the three guys he fought afterwards. Jorge Masvidal and sandwich in between. Gilbert Burns, and then Jorge Masvidal. Look at the improvements he made from the first Jorge Masvidal fight to the third one. Oh, that's not the second fight. The third one of since he fought Covington. Big improvements. Now, of course, you could say he didn't have a camp for Masvidal and all that. I just, just my point. I got one more question to ask you before we go ahead. Do you remember what your scorecard was heading into the fifth round? Of uh, Usman versus, versus Covington? Yeah, the first one. Yeah. If you don't, I, okay. I don't, I don't remember off the top of my head, and I don't want to say the wrong thing. I just want to say I, the reason I'm saying this is I think people like the odds are. I know Usman has really improved. The odds to me, I still think are way off. Like he's like a three to one favorite right now. Like that's insane. I had Kobe up three to one. At worst, it was two to two, and on my score, I gave Kobe the first, the second, and the fourth round. I gave Usman the third round. And I had Kobe in the fifth round winning the fifth round until minute and a half left, or give or take. Until he, like until Usman started landing the big shots and then put him out. Okay. That's I had a two my, to two. I had a two point. to two going into the fifth, and it was okay. anybody's fight. Yeah. So yeah. Th- my whole point was is like, yeah, Usman's the best fighter in the world. Kobe was ex- not that long ago, Kobe was extremely close to beating him. Mm-hmm. Regardless, you know, there's always more to this fight than the X and O's because of their personalities, because of Kobe's. I mean, he has admitted it's a, it's a, it's a, per, it's a, it's an act. Sure. He's admitted it with uh, Candace Owens' interview and and whatnot. But so the carries more. But regardless of what you think of Kobe's stick and and Usman and all this, watching their first fight. The only thing I kept saying is like how extremely tough are both these guys because so many other people would have crumbled at the shots that both guys were landing on each other. And that's what I say. Regardless of how you feel about these two guys, specifically Colby, he's a freaking tough SOB. And so, I mean, obviously, so is Usman. Now, Usman, he's a long and rangy guy. You mentioned the jab. It's a brilliant jab at this point. Lots of teep kicks. He's light on his feet. He moves well. He's a high-volume striker who builds as the fight goes on. He does really well to keep his opponents at the end of his punches, which he has big power there. That's really where he did his best work at Colby, just kind of winning the long-range strikes. He's, since he's beaten Colby, he's added one-punch power. When we saw him you know, hurt Colby, put him down, but now we see him knocking guys out cold like he did to Jorge Masvidal. His straight right is like a deadly weapon. One negative he has, though, is he can, if you get him in the pocket, he can kind of throw wildly leaving open for shots. He also contends to overthrow shots, making them open for counters. Burns cracked him, not not because of this, but Burns cracked him. Colby had him hurt plenty of times. 
Kobe didn't have him hurt to the extent that Burns had him, but Kobe had him hurt. Um, but some of the other things I like, I like that he targeted the body. That's really what set up the knockout against Kobe was his early body work that he was doing to Kobe. He follows his long str- – he does. He fights really good. Like the pocket isn't his strength. That's where he gets wild. But he fights really good out all the way in, and he follows his long strikes right into transition into that mid-range, which works best. He's a huge welterweight. He's so physically strong. I was thinking about this today. Take John Jones in his prime at light, light heavyweight, and like who would who would if you had to bet a hundred dollars on who could out bench press? Would you out bet? Would you take welterweight Kamaru Usman or would you take light heavyweight John Jones? I would bet on Kamaru Usman. If you put him on the Same. squat, you put him on the squat rack. I, I, I like whatever it is, like deadlift, whatever. I'm taking Usman. Like he's so physically strong. I've talked before. I mean, two things always stand out to me about his strength. One is when he fought RDA and RDA was going for Kamara and he just like lifted him up and ripped his arm out. And when his arm is getting bent by a Brazilian black belt in the wrong direction, he just somehow just muscled out. And then also that range where he gets, he clinches against you, goes chest to chest. I said like hell is being pressed against the cage where Kamara has been chest to chest on you and just ripping your body with punches like what he did to uh, Tyron Woodley. He's a good wrestler. We didn't see any wrestling in the first fight, but he can shoot on your hips. He's more of a longer arm snatch single kind of guy, more wear you down than explode through your hips. Uh, he'll catch kicks, get you there, down that way. Um, so, and one thing that's so successful about Usman with his his takedowns is he doesn't necessarily want to just take you down. He just wants to get into a position where he can kind of wear on you and make you hold his weight and then just hit you. He'll knee you. He'll, he'll punch your kneecap. Like he, he shoulder you, put his head up, rub it in to get your chin, just kind of annoy you. And when he gets on top, smothering top control, it's not Habib level, but it is like round ending. He takes you down very, uh, very good chance that you're not getting up, and if you do, he's going to hit you in every position. Now, move on to Kobe. Kobe's a southpaw. I think one advantage he had in the first round, uh, in the first fight, is being a southpaw because, obviously, you can train with southpaws. Everything's different. Now, obviously, Usman has faced southpaws in the past, but it's still different. It's an advantage being southpaw. We just talked about how big Kamara Usman and how strong he is. Kobe's actually undersized. Like Kobe's talked about like he could make lightweight in the past. I'm not saying he should, but I'm saying he is a little bit undersized. I don't know if he goes down to lightweight if his biggest strength carries with him, which is his insane high output striking. Uh, he he fights as an output that three or four people in the UFC can fight at. I think like Max Holloway is a guy that stands out to me. I'm, I'm sure there's other guys, but like very few people can fight at the pace that Kobe Covington does. He gets in the pocket. He attacks with combos. He does really good uh, – he does really good work in the pocket. I don't think he gets enough. So to me, it's like three ranges, all the way out in the pocket. And there's other ranges, but generally speaking, all the way out, the kicking range kind of, the pocket, and then all the way in. He was really winning the inside pocket exchanges because he slides his head. He really does well to move out of the way of attacks and then counter with combinations. He can battle in the clinch. We didn't see that against Houston, but he does well to battle in the clinch. Um, oh, one thing I forgot to say is, He's really good, and I said this about Shabazi, and he does the same thing. He's really good at wrapping his punches around and coming at little different angles. And he has this, like, wrap-around left hook that he was throwing that uh, it was landing really well. He also threw some couple, a couple, like, shovel uppercuts that was kind of coming in, kind of sneaking behind punches that was working good for him. 
One big difference, though, between Usman and Covington, that probably the biggest difference between their striking, is Kobe doesn't have fight-ending power. Like, he can hurt you, he can wobble you, but he can't put you out with one shot. I like his kicks to the body, though. Um, he's not doing deep kicks. He's more like uh, coming across the body, ribs stacking. He's got great entries in his wrestling. He's definitely a different wrestler than than Usman. Usman's a snatch single, kind of just get you working. Usman actually wants to I mean, Kobe wants to barrel through you, get the takedown. He's relentless, too. Like, he doesn't mind getting his head stuffed, being underneath you, kind of hanging onto an ankle, slowly working, getting you down. Great top control. He advances position on the, on the ground. Good ground and pound. So that's pretty much laid down. Now here comes the prediction. I feel like Kobe needs to get to the pocket, and I obviously I said that, and get past that kicking long arm range of Usman. If he does so, so this is if I'm cornering Kobe, I'm saying Kobe, we got to get to the pocket, and then when we get in that pocket, we got to turn up the pace even more than the first fight, which seems impossible. But when he did that, when he really threw volume shots, Usman did not like that because nobody has ever thrown that kind of volume at Usman ever. Because two things: one, Kobe was fearless from Usman's power. Which, to his credit, is very obviously mentally strong, physically strong, and he has the cardio to do it. The other thing, so turn up, get in the pocket, fight the entire fight in the pocket, make Usman throw down because Usman gets wild. Now, of course, you got to worry about not getting hit with those wild shots because Usman has this insane power, but you can outvolume him. It's you know, probably the only guy in the UFC that can outvolume Kamara Usman. But also, I think he should try to sneak in some takedowns. And I think we're going to see more wrestling in this fight because both guys saw that they didn't wrestle. I don't. I think, but I think Usman can slow the fight down and and win his wrestling that way. I think Colby's got a surprise. He's got to throw a combination, get Usman lifting his hands up, then kind of come underneath. Thirty seconds, end of the round, get a takedown and close round, win it. I don't think he can win the rounds per se of taking. Usman down and hold him down. I think Usman could maybe, because he's so much bigger and stronger, hold Kobe. I wouldn't get down on it, but maybe. Now, if I'm flipping over to to Usman's side, I'm saying that keep your distance, use your movement, jab, teep kicks, continue to work the body. When he gets into the pocket, I actually want you initiating a clinch, trying to back him up against the cage, trying to weigh on him, use your size, use your advantage. And I'm I'm actually trying to use – so I'm trying to really focus in on the three ranges. I want range one. I don't want range two. I want range three. So that's what it comes down to. I really think it's going to be the ranges. So who do I think is going to win? Well, I give Kobe a much, much, much better shot than Vegas. I definitely still think he should be the underdog. And I think there is a route for victory. The problem is I really feel it's a very limited route because it's such a hard thing to do. To get into the pockets, get past the long-range stuff, and then out-volume Usman, and then actually bring it up to a high volume and have to use wrestling. Everything I said Usman, we've seen him do it, and we've seen him do it to Colby. So a part of me said, wait a minute, Colby fought Usman's fight. And almost won. But can Kobe fight his fight? Like he was, was he forced to fight Usman's fight? And like he was very successful in Usman's fight, but he still had to fight Usman's fight. Plus, ultimately, 
even if Kobe does everything right, Usman still has that one shot power, put you out, hurt you. And I'm with you. I think Usman uh, pulls away a little bit more. I think he lands the big shot after landing, going to the body, having success with that. And I think he puts him out with a, with a big shot. I'm going to say he does in the third round also by knockout. So give me Kamaru Usman by third round TKO. There you have it. As deep and comprehensive a fight breakdown as you'll find in the business. Uh, after all the X's and O's, both of us going with Kamaru Usman to remain UFC welterweight champion and for, well, uh, the the valiant and talented Colby Covington uh, to have to go back to the drawing board to see his uh, direction in the division going forward. For Keith Schillen, I am Ben Duffy. This has been the Sherdog Radio Network preview for UFC 268, which takes place at Madison Square Garden this Saturday. Uh available on pay-per-view through ESPN plus exclusively. Enjoy the rest of your week. Thanks for listening and enjoy the fights. Come see us on the recap Saturday night.